Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Welcome back to 10% True. Thanks for joining us for this, your third um, excursion on the channel. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so for anybody listening, uh, as I've, we, we've just said, third excursion means there's two prior episodes. So go back and watch those if you um, haven't already. In the first episode, Nick, you talked to us about the fast jet training pipeline that the RAF had in place when you went through flying training. And you talked about the tactical weapons unit uh, and the tactical weapons conversion unit and the triple TE. And then in the second episode, you talked to us a bit about life on an operational tornado squadron. And that included... Um, a really great description of low-level flying and how the TF system and the tornado worked, as well as some of your operations over Iraq and various other things. So I think this is turning into a tour de force of, of tornado discussion. I'm, I'm really enjoying it, so thank you very much. Me too. So today then, we'll, we'll um, in episode one, and maybe a little bit in, in episode two, you talked a bit about going back to um, the um, tactical weapons uh, training unit was it what's what's the name of it at, at um valley well so at the time it was called fast jet attack weapons um there were two training squadrons uh, on anglesey at four fts that's four flying training squadron sorry four flying training school one dealt with the pure flying aspects of the hawk so the students came in having flown the Takano, a bit like the t6 texan and done all the basic flying type stuff and then they had to learn to do that in, in a, a faster jet in a, in a similar way that they get the American students may have gone from the USAF from the T-37 to the T-38. And so the course is, broadly speaking, now just to uh, fight a lead-in, something like that. So they're starting to use the aircraft, learn to use the aircraft as a weapon system. They they get exposed to a variety of different skill sets. Uh, it's a, it is really a whistle-stop tour through the different roles, and they get a feel for what they're good at, what they enjoy, and then from that they get a posting to a frontline aircraft type. So yes, that, that's the uh, the way it went. So, so you returned there as an instructor, and you shared some of your observations about what that was like. Yeah, uh, and then you returned in was it two thousand and three? No, two thousand and four. You went back to Nine yeah. Squadron at RAF yeah. Marham, which is in Norfolk, to fly the tornado again. Yeah, <clears throat> pick up the story. Then what what did you bring to the guys at Marham based on that experience? Then so I think the career structure changed slightly. To be a squadron instructor pilot or a squadron QFI, as we called it, generally guys had done a tour as a, a pure flying instructor. I just think that the fighter lead-in role and the more applied flying that we did there was much more relevant to being a frontline Q squadron QFI. In particular, the 
the how tos you know how to get the best out of the airplane um obviously the the weapons instructors the the you know um patchwares had a significant impact on the on the tactical stuff but trying to help people get the best out of the airplane because it really didn't help you that much um that was the thing i i felt that i could really bring to the bring to the role um i think one of the the great things about being an instructor at uh, attack weapons was flying with people from different backgrounds so i i had to teach um, BFM, you know, 1v1 visual combat. And that was a core skill that everyone had to do. So as a Tornado GR pilot, it wasn't something we'd done a lot of, potentially a bit of a black art. So I was pestering all the guys with um, either a fighter background in terms of like air defense, the Tornado F3, or or we had Mirage uh, 2000 French pi exchange pilot there. We had an Aussie F-18 pilot. You know, I was pestering those guys like, you know, can you explain exactly what I am looking for and sometimes people kind of struggle. They've been doing it long enough that just they recognize pictures subconsciously and they just knew what to do with those with those situations. And um, there was nothing better than going flying with those guys to see what they did with the airplane, where they placed the lift vector in combat and how they flew the airplane. Because you can learn, having seen those pictures, you can learn by imitation. So coming back to the, the front line in the, in the, in the two-seat environment i think it's one of the challenges with the with the whole setup is how do you teach someone when they can't jump in the back with you it was unheard of really for let's say the junior pilot to jump in the back with uh, the squadron weapons instructor to see how he did it but but if you if you were to draw the parallel with either a harrier squadron or a jaguar squadron in the raf or potentially i imagine with you know your c model eagle or even f-16 guys they could go in the tub with the with the patch wearer and watch how he runs his radar. When does he when does he take a particular mode? How does he organise his his cockpit? So um, that that learning by imitation is so much harder in a two seat squadron. I mean, the way I got around that when I was organising the training as like a, a deputy training officer was I tried to put a, a weapons instructor on the console of the sim when, for example, a new guy was learning the targeting pod. You know, to give them the best possible instruction from the best targeting pod operator on the squadron you know, when he's doing his first few um, goes at it in the simulator. But after that, you know, it just has to be via tape review and debrief and things like that. And, um, uh, you know, obviously you do the best you can, but I just, I'd like to emphasize what I think is so important is the power of learning by imitation and watching someone. So, you know, I, I'd seen that work for me at Tech Weapons and then it was a go, so right, how do I bring that to, to a two-seat squadron with the limitations that I've just highlighted? We didn't really ever explore, mostly because we were just having um, a, a tremendous time going through the different stories and 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 talking about sort of weaponeering and using and employing the airplane as a as a, a weapon system. But we never really talked about then the handling qualities of the airplane, the, the handling characteristics of it. It's a fly by wire airplane. We talked a little yeah. bit about you know uh, uh, sort of some of the defensive techniques that you might use to get away from a, an attacking fighter or whatever. But <clears throat> did you then get back to the the, the uh, when did you get well you didn't get back to it. did you go to nine squadron then with uh, a set of instructional techniques in your pocket that were new or, or different? I don't I don't think so. It's really a case of what I felt passionate about and going right. Okay, what have I seen work? I would characterize myself as just an average guy. You know, um, I I've seen some of the other people that you have interviewed and I've been massively impressed with their career profile and what they're you know patch wearers they've done trials they've done all sorts of stuff 
uh, and I, you know, I I don't really count myself in the same league as those guys. So I think, well, what worked for me? How how did I get better in, as an instructor at attack weapons? And now, how do I, given the limitations, translate that to uh, being in the front line? So when I came back, I I did a, a short refresher course uh, on the tornado conversion unit up in uh, up at Lossiemouth before then coming back. Uh, to the front line and of course in the time that i've been away that the, the squadrons had transitioned from the tornado gr1 to the gr4 so i'd gone from um a legacy instrument set the the classic hawk that i flew and instructed on was um no head-up display it was just legacy dials 1970s stuff but we we tried to up the workload for the students by um giving them sets of checks or sops to 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 follow but what it it could never replicate it's just the complexity of modern frontline aircraft types the the typhoon wasn't in service uh, uh, with frontline squadrons at that point but the classic hawk was always going to struggle in terms of you know the limitations to the hardware fit as to how it can prepare students for flying the typhoon it's just like two generations past you know to to go to that and i even noticed coming back to the gr4 that with the new wide angle head-up display there's a lot more information there I felt saturated. I came back um, from the Hawk, and I, I got loads of essay from just the TACAN and Legacy Instruments on and head down display, um, and and I found all of a sudden this wide angle HUD just had too much, and I was going, oh man, I almost had to go head down to cherry pick the information I needed. But of course, like anything, you, you get better at um, dragging out the most relevant parameter at the time and being able to look in the right place to grab that piece of information at the right time under high workload. So um, yeah, that was a, the big thing was really kind of coming back to a jet that had matured. It had um, smart weapons, um, 1553 data bus, so that the smart weapons it could carry included um, what we call the ePaveway 2, which is effectively a, a thousand pound class weapon with a GPS guidance kit that also could take laser designation. So um, that, well, that was a, a kind of primary weapon. And of course, Alarm 2 was in service, Brimstone came into service and um and later uh, dual mode sinker dual mode seeker brimstone and just a lot more sort of smart weaponry had come into into service you know uh, in the time that i've been away so we'll we'll, we'll delve into the alarm piece and the, the brimstone piece and the egbu in, in a minute but but can we stick with just the flying bit for the moment then and just of course yeah before we hit record you were talking about you know coming back to the tornado going to nine squadron coming back to the tornado um, having handrails and, and putting in place um, sort of methods or rules of thumbs that you could teach yeah. um, other other guys in the squadron as a, as a QFI. Um, <clears throat> can you just summarise what the aeroplane is like to fly then before sure. talking a bit about some of those um, yeah, of course. Uh, handrails? So basically the aeroplane is pretty straightforward to fly in a basic terms. The, the novel parts of it are having variable uh, geometry wings, so you have to sweep them. Unlike the F-14, you have to put the wings in, in um, the right position at the right speed. Um, it doesn't tell you by burble or buffet or anything like that. I mean, the alpha will just go up and up and up if you haven't moved the wings forward. Um, modern fourth gen fighters will have the, the camber of the wing change automatically when you pull G to get the best um, lift out of the wing. We had to select through a switch on the throttles maneuver, um, maneuver slat that came out in 45 wing and then flaps came out automatically to match that when the wings came forward to 25. And if you swept the swept wings back to 45, the flaps would retract as the wings swept back. So it was just very mandrolic. So 
it didn't save you from overstressing either. There was no limitation on that. As the Alpha built, the aircraft became progressively heavier to fly to the extent that if you were in uh, flat scissors or, or something like that, so low speed, high alpha reversals, it was a two-handed operation to fly the aircraft. I understand, although I didn't fly the F3, that the stick loads in the, um, the air defense variant were, were much lighter. And I, as a personal as a personal opinion, I would like to have seen the stick loads lighter. I think you can fly with more precision if you're not having to kind of muscle the, the stick around. Um, the uh, the reason for this was uh, the spin prevention and incident limit incidence limitation system, and it's basically trying to discourage you from being aggressive with the re reversals at high alpha in case the aircraft departed. So, so part of the the, um, the handling check that we would do annually was that you would um, get the candidate to t take the aircraft into this high alpha regime do some reversals and work out how how to get the best out of the aircraft and typically that would mean a slight unload a dab of rudder as you as you um apply a lateral stick input to get the reversal on before then loading back up to the um to the alpha limit the problem is that if you got the nose low we had very little nose authority to bring the nose back up if you can compare and contrast that with when the the spills this incident limitation system was switched off. The stick was further forward. The loads were much lighter. The aircraft was more sprightly. So I've I've heard people talk about you know uh, flying the F-14 for example, and these um you know real names within the F-14 fleet. You knew how to cheat. They would pull circuit breakers. They would do anything that would give them an edge. I think you know if I was going to be taking the aircraft into combat, then this is the sort of thing you would need to do. But then you're actually breaking a rule to do that. And I don't know anybody that did any sort of practice with this, um, the spills switched off, you know, and you, and you can't really go into war doing something new for the first time that you haven't, that you haven't trained to. But yeah, as has been alluded to, you know, we're in a bad place if we find ourselves in a flat scissors with anyone because they'll, they'll out, out for us and, and um, you know, get above us and get behind us but in no time. So it's not a place that we'd really want to be. But yeah, summarise, flying the aircraft didn't help you. Easy to overstress, difficult to fly well and difficult to, um, yeah, to get the best out of it. But it didn't turn that well. So you have to be aggressive with it to get the best out of the, the truck. It turns like a truck. Well, you just got to be aggressive with the truck, but right to the limit. Were there any uh, particular sort of foibles that the airplane had and I think uh, you know a couple of things I think about the F111 there was a there was a part of the F111 um, flight envelope I think where if you were low with the wing swept back and inverted there was something there was a rule about recovery where you you you, you so so when they crossed when they would crest a ridge line if they had the wings all the way back they would never go to the inverted point and pull down because because they wouldn't be able to recover and I can't remember the aerodynamic phenomenon I've had um uh God, I've forgotten his name. I'll have, to, I'll have to trim this out because that's embarrassing. Who did I have? What's his <laughs> name? Was he Aussie or American? Brad. Brad Inslee. Yeah, right. so, I, so I had Brad Inslee on, on the program and uh, a couple of years ago he talked about that. I'll put a link to his interviews in the description somewhere. But but he talked about the dangers of those sorts of things. So were there any little idiosyncrasies around the tornado that were like that? Um, and, and as a secondary question, if the answer is no, uh, you can go straight into the secondary question, which is, what was the acceleration like? People talk a lot about um, the F-111 being able to accelerate. So, so the stories you hear about things like Red Flag are, you know, these F-111s out-accelerate everybody, but 
the RAF fly underneath you. Um, so, so, so that seemed, that seemed to be our thing rather than going fast, but, but what was, yeah. What, yeah. Um, so yeah, there were no idiosyncrasies really. I mean, 67 wing, I don't know many people that would overbank, you know, kind of, um, ridge rolling in 67, mainly because the, the pitch response wasn't so great. So if you were doing aggressive maneuvering like that, we had a, a training limit of 150 degrees of bank. So you'd never go fully inverted. And one of the tactical limitations of doing that is called a wing flash. It's just changing the, 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 the platform profile of the of the aircraft. So actually you can make yourself more obvious by doing this overbank, you know, 250 degrees of bank and then pulling down to contour into the valley. You might be better just to accept a slightly higher uh, height above the ground as you bunt. But the, the, the kind of the area presented to somebody looking down at the aircraft doesn't change so much and it's that kind of change in profile that generates you know conspicuity it means that people will spot that so yeah 67 wing really straight line running high speed not really doing anything more than like a couple of check turns to see if somebody was still following you in terms of acceleration yeah it was it was really good um i was qualified as um as a passenger pilot so i I would take people, um, sometimes the maintainers, sometimes VIPs. But one of the things that I'd do with them was um, out over the sea where you didn't have to worry about noise, slope to 250 knots, uh, the wings at 25 with the maneuver flap and slat down, and then just slam it to max to max reheat and then just clean the wing up, 350 knots, swept the wings to 45. And then as you go through probably about uh, 450, go to, to 67, and then we'd go to 550 knots, and then stick the airplane on its on its ass, and um, it was lovely because you get to see the, your world through their eyes. You know, you say, right, look back over your shoulder, and you can see the world just dropping away. And then you put a roll in, and it's going, this is just the best job in the world. I love my job, and it's serious most of the time. But there's just there's a time and a place for exuberance and to kind of controlled exuberance, but to show people this is what this is what we can do. And, and you can see I've got a smile on my face now. It's such a happy memory to see it through their eyes and just to sometimes fly for the joy of it. Uh, so our fit limit speed-wise, I mean, we could do supersonic, but you'd have to have, um, you know, cleared all the stores off. And, and for the most part, the training limits were were subsonic. The the early GR1s had had the supersonic ramps um, still fitted, and the, and the, the F3 had them, of course. And I understand that it made a big difference around 1.3 Mac that you would suddenly get another surge of power, but they were they were disabled for the GR most of the GR ones, and certainly by the time I got to it, and in the GR four. So yeah, we we wouldn't be able to um, outrun an, an F111 because you know I did a flag with those guys there, and 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 they were very the the Australian ones, and and they're very laconic about the size of a Wes, the stern Wes. When you're doing one point two, it's pretty it's pretty small. So, you know, they're going to have to be right in your shorts before they're going to have a weapon solution for a stern shot. They're granted. Um, so yeah, the F one eleven was was quite a machine, and with loads of gas as well. That's the other great thing about the machine. So, can you tell us then a little bit about some of these handrails, or you know, give us an example yeah. of what a handrail is? Then, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I. As an instructor at TAT Weapons, they would give the students, right, for example, in, in a BFM scenario, slightly artificial, but if you decided to pitch back into the fight, they would say, right, well, you can run to base height, and if you're at 10,000 feet and 390 knots, you can pitch back to the light buffet, looking back over your shoulder, and you won't overstress the jet. 
and the trailing limit for the, the Hawk at that stage was um, 6.9 G. But they say, well, if you're going faster than that, then you're going to need to pull to the G limit and wait for the speed to bleed and then transition to the light buffer. So the tornado didn't really talk to you like that. And, and as I said, it was easy to overstress it. And then, you know, you'd have to come back and report it to the engineers and the aircraft is lost to the squadron for the rest, the rest of the flying day whilst they do the, um, the checks. But one handrail I do remember, I just went out and did some test flying, to be honest. I was thinking, okay, I want to teach the guys how to be aggressive with the airplane so that they can get the best out of it. So I thought, okay, in a training fit, let's do, uh, I'll do an imaginary a lead turn, a break into someone uh, at um, to the, get to the max G and then transition, getting the wings forward between the various G and alpha limits. And they did change as, as, as the aircraft slowed down. Um, but yeah, typically you would end up like 25 degrees nose down with max reheat uh, and you could hold, um, you know, the, the alpha limit, 21 units and 4G. So, you know, for the guys who are used to flying, you know, F-16, F-15, it's, it's lame, isn't it? 4G, it's nothing. Um, we could pull five with wings at 45. So initial brake turn, if we had less than four tons of gas, we could put, we could pull more. But, you know, it just really illustrates that we were not somebody that is going to really sort of aim to turn and burn for any significant amount of time. We try and use numerical advantage if, if we had to stay and fight, but generally speaking, try to deny the first shot and then try to separate and run whilst calling for delouse from, you know, your, the, your fighter protection. Hmm. So what we can see behind you is uh, an interesting fit on that jet. And one of the things that I'm sure will pique a lot of interest and get uh, some ears pricked up is that one of the things that you did on nine squadron was seed. Yeah. Um, so, so, do you want to talk a little bit about that then and, and what it yeah. what it meant to you and, and the fit on the jet behind you and, and what you know we we know that alarm was the weapon and and it's interesting you you've um you know referenced star baby before in terms of of his um descriptions of you know going out and shooting harms and that kind of stuff and one of the things that he said was which was really interesting was that the brits would never say anything about alarm wouldn't, wouldn't tell anybody anything about it so he, he had no he, i said to him, how did it work? i have no idea how it works they never told us anything so so, you know, the, the system's out of use, but obviously there are some, some things you're not going to talk about. But what can you tell us about it? What can you tell us about the mission? What can you tell us about, you know, what CAD meant or SEED meant to you as a Royal Air Force sure. tornado pilot? Yeah, so when I came back to, to 9 Squadron, it was really 9 and 31, there were the um, the SEED um, role specialists. When I say role specialists, it, it didn't take up a massive amount of the flying, I would say maybe 25%. That's a rough, a rough percentage. So if you were to compare us to, you know, a block 50 CJ squadron doing, you know, the, um, the force protection mission that they've got, I think they spend a lot more time training to it than, than we did with the, um, with the alarm. Um, I guess, you know, to, to kind of reference a little bit of history, the, and this is where I can show you a, um, a bit of, um, sharing the screen here. So I'll show you, uh, a picture of a, a tornado G01 actually from the um, from the Cold War. This is when the aircraft first came into um, into service. So forgive me while I just bring up the slideshow. I'm still seeing. <clears throat> there we go. Don't worry, and I'll trim this out, Nick. <clears throat> yeah, thank you. Yeah. Okay, so um, the 
requirement for uh, alarm came out really during the Cold War and it took some time for the missile to be developed. From what I understand in open source materials, it was to do with the um, the rocket motor. Um, they had trouble with getting it to work in the way that they wanted it to. In essence, you, what you see here is a couple of GR1s from 31 Squadron. They were based at Bruggen and um, the the fit that you've got there is one that really would limit the range of the aircraft. But the, the missile was really designed to punch a hole in the flock where all the uh, mobile SAMs would have been to allow follow-on strikers to go through through that hole and um, and then prosecute their mission. So obviously it, there's the debate about suppression versus destruction of enemy air defences. But one of the capabilities of the missile was, was called corridor su suppression. So you could fire off a salvo of the um, of the missiles and they would seek out targets in um, in priority order and start to engage those and, and that would work really well for a low level ingress for, for a strike package i think the thing to highlight is that the gr1 was not really capable of um of smart weapons handling it didn't have any interface between the aircraft and the missile so the crews would have done their mission planning and then um, put the mission data onto uh, onto a media that was then transferred to a, uh, a piece of equipment that run by the engineers called PUGS, which I think stood for Programmable uh, Upload Ground Station or something like that. But think of a box that they would plug into each mission and, and um, upload the the uh, mission files detailing the, the target's um, location and, um, and the priorities, which system they're looking at, all the uh, electronic uh, warfare library stuff. You know, that you've heard generically talked about by Star Baby, but once it was uploaded to the uh, to the aircraft, then there was no interface um, capable with the missile on the GR1 because it had no data bus. So you know the sort of endurance the aircraft would have on a, um, a low level mission would be probably 40 minutes, 45 minutes. That the fit would have around five tons worth of, uh, of fuel. So this kind of mission would be get airborne out of Bruggen volley off the missiles for the for the first push through the uh through the flot and then return uh, and um, the corridor suppression mode that was was talked about never really was used um, or to even talked about or trained to after after the um the cold war finished and, and we transitioned to the gr4 which is where i joined the role so uh when i arrived on nine squadron then it was a it was a role generally that um, took part in, in, in exercises. We do a workup for people. It was a role specialization along with um, some of the other smarter weapons like brimstones we'll come on to. But um, in essence, I, well, I would summarize by saying it was not that easy to uh, to plan and not that easy to operate. Uh, very mandrolic overall, best suited to targets of known location and um, the aircraft has no emitter location system, so all the great stuff that Star Baby was talking about in terms of range quality and, and stuff like that, we would have relied on a good in picture beforehand to make the best plan we could, and then an airborne update from um, an EW asset like the um, Nimrod R1 or or the um, or the River Joint. So that that would have been passed over the radio, and of course, you know. There, there are limitations to how you would do how you can do that. You might talk about a certain system as fragged, so that this location was unchanged, or it might be placed or, or described reference bullseye. Hmm. But um, you can appreciate that you know any changes would be potentially quite tricky to um, to react to effectively. 
I think probably the best thing to do is to explain generically how we might how we might um, plan a mission, and then explain why why it was difficult to adjust to the changes. Um, do you want to? We talked do about. Wanna, do you want to come back to full screen? Uh, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, should we do that? Okay, fine. Stop share. Um, yeah, so we talked about the pugs. Now, when I came to the GR4, that had been superseded by PC pugs. So effectively, the um, modeling of the missile, the seeker, all that stuff was on, on a laptop, a secret laptop. So in terms of prosecuting attack, we decide, okay, uh, what is the threat system? And without going into too much detail, the PC pugs allow us to choose a range that are uh, achieve the probability of kill that we were looking for. There was some planning in parallel with the regular tamper, which is um, a bit like Falcon Falcon View, the mission planning aid that you would plan the rest of your mission with, and you would eventually incorporate or export the mission from PC Pugs to um, to the tamper. But at the initial stage, you would be coming up with a plan that, yeah. We need to come in from that direction because it gives us some um, terrain screening and then you'd try to work out the range you wanted to fire from given the effective effect you were looking to achieve and that would effectively come up with a an iron bomb fire point so think of it as a a place from which the missile if it lost any um, connection with the main computer in the aircraft through the data bus it would go okay well you've got me to this place and i know where the where the target is from here. Um, if you have the data bus link working, then potentially you could manipulate it and, and take the aircraft and the missile somewhere else. But this iron bomb fire point was like a like a reversionary means of delivering the weapon if, if the ROE allowed it. Um, so, you know, in terms of planning the launch point, there were different modes we, we could use. Now, We've talked about corridor suppression that that had become a move point by that stage the the main modes that we could use were direct which is like effectively like the the harm where it would tra trajectory shape based on the range of the firing um and and as star said in the past that these these shots are going to be slower than a sam so any shots you take are shots of retribution if if you're being shot at yourself um so that that direct is the first one Loiter is the unusual capability that the um, that the alarm had, and dual is a compromise between the both. Neither the best bits of either, but um, loiter is an interesting one because effectively the aircraft, having delivered the missile, the missile would climb to height, and then deploy a parachute, and then the uh, missile would be over the top of the, um, the target set, waiting for the threat system to be uh, detected. And at some stage, it could, if it got the criteria, then detach the parachute and then the weapon would free fall. So that's quite unusual. So I think, honestly, the main strength of alarm is that the the enemy is like at the time, the threat notions were likely to be familiar with with harm. But the the unusual thing about alarm is this loiter capability. So they think, OK, well, I did my procedural switch off of, um, of the radar transmitter and the the launch aircraft's gone away i'm good but you're not potentially because this missile's in the parachute then it drops the parachute and then and free falls to um to detonate around the um threat radar and, and may achieve some damage or a kill the challenge if you can imagine 
um, loiter is the wind effect. Um, and of course, you know, as has been alluded to by the Sarvabi and others, that you know, you, your threat system, if you are engaging a battery, is not just a thing, a single um, launcher. It's or a single radar. It might be one radar, or it might be like a battery of SA. It might have multiple um, telars there. So, how do you position this missile in its parachute so that it, the seeker is going to see what it needs to see? So, think of a torch dangling under a parachute that's descending. The, what a torch beam that's diverging slightly and the footprint it has on the ground is kind of analogous to what the the seeker can see and what the missile could reach kinematically so the lower you can imagine if it's in its parachute the higher it's it drops the parachute the greater capability it's got to maneuver whilst free falling and gliding to to engage the target um it's the wind could be a major limiting factor so yeah we could adjust a bit for that but as the weapon uh, drops, the footprint of the torch beam on the ground gets smaller. The basket that it can engage gets smaller. It's massively, massively complex. So the people who were most knowledgeable about the system generally had done a lot of work talking to industry. And, uh, you know, say MBDA, who are the manufacturers, were excellent. Um, always on hand to answer questions. And we, I think we really did need them. I wouldn't account myself as an expert in alarm. I know a couple of characters who were really good and who, who um, in, were involved in the second Gulf War. But I, I think, honestly, I would be minded if it was my plan. I would be saying right to my contact at MBDA, this is the effect I'm looking to have. This is the disposition we've got. How are we going to achieve that? What settings do we need? It was that complex in terms of priorities and stuff like that to um you know build the ulib that uh, along the same lines that starby we said with the, the parametrics in there but then which elements of the system do you select which you want it, the missile to look out for and um and how do you prioritize those so i just felt it was really really complex um to do do a, an effective plan at, the, at a simple level and this is one of the benefits of the system you could self-suppress a target so uh, and the, this is a um kind of the limited combat ready level of training that all the squadrons did you could put um as we had in the picture but on the picture behind me you've got an outboard stub pylon with um it's above the fuel tank you could put your um your alarm there you could have your self-protection missiles be it asram or in nine lima on the inboards and your regular bomb load underneath the jet so you could fire you could ingress the target area you could fire your alarms then uh, arc around the outs outskirts of the target area, waiting for the alarms to get to the the impact point or to be established in the parachutes before you then turn in to deliver your own weapons. So, you know, effectively, you were able to self-suppress to a, to a, a degree. And I think that was a, a major strong point. Most people could do that kind of plan. But the seed where you're offering support to a package with the um, the changing locations of the target and try to uh, make make sure that you've got enough weapons over the target to provide the coverage during the TOT window of the strikers becomes very complicated. But the strong points of the of the aircraft is that we had two sets of um, brains. Um, you know, I can be flying the aircraft, missing the ground. Um, and staying out, out of a missile engagement zone whilst the backseater is probably heads in a fair bit, um, manipulating the mission data um, to reflect a change in target location. 
um, and, it, and it is literally typing in lats and longs. So you can see that there's room for like um, transcription errors. And, and so how how do you translate your um, your update from uh, the, the RJ, from the river joint, you know, where, where the target, where the threat system is now moved to, then how do you, that might be described in, as, as a bullseye position. You know, you've got to then translate that into a Latin long and make sure you key it in correctly. So you can appreciate there's, there's a lot of complexity involved there. Um, I would say also that um, trying to get, even with pre-planned attacks, we do an attack preview where, where you go, okay, we've got the, the data downloaded, the missile, run a self-test on it. Does it look what we're expecting? We are expecting to fire at the back end of the basket because, you know, the threat is potent and we need to be able to then hide behind a hill and egress. Does it look like that? Does the buy and bomb fire point, this, this reversionary fire point, the planned fire point, does it look where it should in, 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 in comparison to the markers for the basket? And, and it was not unusual to find that something had gone wrong in the plan. And then you have to go back and review the tapes, review the plan and go, right, what, what, what went wrong? And, um, and and kind of uh, get to the bottom of that. And, you know, it wasn't unusual to need some uh, weapons instructor input to um, to validate that. So it's by no means as easy to use as uh, as I, I get the impression that harm was, especially with the HTS and the, the kind of the automation of it. Um, so I've talked about direct mode and loiter mode. Um, dual is effectively a hybrid of, of the two. Uh, think of a situation where you you fire the missile, it's heading towards the target. If it doesn't get the threat system emissions that it's looking for as its top priority, then it will then abort a direct attack and climb to height and deploy the parachute and then enter a loiter mode. So it's quite flexible, um, but you didn't get the same endurance in the parachute as a loiter. And, um, you know, perhaps if, if it was um, a later switch on from the... Uh, from the threat system, then maybe if you fired a direct mode, that you would um, you you would have the system come online and start transmitting towards the end of the time of flight to the extent that the missile would then home on the target. So it was kind of like a compromise um, compromise mode. So yeah, I think those are the kind of the main the main points. So I think as as um, it's been alluded to, people didn't really know what we could do with it. So I think there's a surprise factor. Um, to the employment of the weapon and as, well, as far as i know it was used in it was definitely used in the first gulf war second gulf war not quite so many missiles alarmed to and again it's hard to validate was there a kill you know i understand some systems went offline but it's hard to um hard to quantify as to whether it was a hard kill or or not and that actually brings me on to just one other thing to do with the loiter mode if you think about it the um the missiles landing on a parachute, it's undamaged, so there's the potential for exploitation. So that's that's something to consider as well, isn't it? And um, and and one thing that we talked about offline that I'd just like to highlight is the whole rules of engagement thing. I, I remember Star Baby being very um, eloquent in his description about how his equipment could come up with range quality figures, and um, and so you'd know where the emitter was but one of the things that really struck me at the time with alarm was that is getting the rules of engagement and the permissions to use it because you might know where the threat system is relative to you but what's nearby have the enemy set their missiles up 
missile systems up close to a primary school. Yeah, yeah, it's in violation of the law of armed conflict, but, you know, that never stopped anyone before. Um, so, you know, I, I just felt it would need to be a full-on shooting war with the lawyers saying, yeah, just crack on, do what you need to do um, before we'd be allowed to employ it. Because if if you were to compare it with a, a standard uh, attack that we might have planned and, and the, uh, that we did plan, the the lawyers got to enjoy having right what is the target construction where are you coming from what are the impact conditions what fragmentation is there going to be and what's the pattern of life like you know are there going to be people there at the time is it rush hour or is everyone in their bed when you're hitting this target and then they can quite comfortably say the chances of killing non-competence is virtually nil so you know that's with a, a normal bomb well if you if you change to firing a an anti-radiation missile, you don't know fully where it's going to go, especially if the target location has changed. What's in the, what's nearby? What if the if the weapon malfunctions or if if they switch off and, and the the the, um, the missile loses guidance? So I don't have answers to these questions other than, you know, that the, there has to be appetite at the political level to shoulder this risk when you're employing weapons in this in this way. And you're not you don't have the luxury of controlling the parameters and being able to predict weapons effects in the same way that you would for other pre-planned targeting that, that have gone on. How did you, Nick, um, how did you, if you're, I think, I can't remember how many were in the photo. It looked like the fit was seven. So was it four on the um, shoulder pylons and then three on the center pylons or whatever they're called? Yeah. The so the, 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 the on the fuselage pylons, we call the shoulder ones. So you could, you could put three underneath there and the stub pylons that were uh, off the sides of the uh, of the pylon holding the underwing tanks, you could fit them to either the outboard ones or the inboard or both. But for, to have self-protection in the form of an air-to-air missile, be it ASRAM or an A9 Lima, you would, if you're on a seed mission, generally speaking, be carrying five. So three under the, under the fuselage and then two on the stubs with your, your self-protection missiles intact. But you know, if you if you had fighter sweep, where you decided that you needed that many missiles, then clearly you could increase the loadout. So, so how did you deconflict between the targets and what the missile was going to go after? Then, so I think, I mean, if you take the um, sort of hanging in the parachute mode as an example, you've got four, five, seven of these things hanging in, hanging in parachutes over a, a given um, area of terrain, and as you said, that sort of area shrinks as the as it as it sort of the height above the ground decreases but uh, you know let's say you've got four emitters in in that area that you want to go after with those seven missiles how do you make sure that the first emitter that comes online doesn't get all seven landing on on its head a really good question yeah i think it would be down to um setting the priorities differently in each missile uh and this is where it became massively complicated because you would in the salvo you would have um effectively called, what do we call them sub targets so everything you could have a whole cluster of sub targets in the same area uh, and you could have fired the, the missiles targeting these different sub targets from the same iron bomb fire point the same reversionary fire point or planned fire point and and they would all be slightly different so that that was the would be the way that you would do it however you know the we had loser plans and any good um you know, attack pilot and air defense pilot will have a, a solid loser plan. What happens if we have fallout from a whole aircraft like number two doesn't go? And if he was targeting 
a particular emitter, then you have to go, right, what, what are my priorities and what was the pre-briefed um, or fallout from that? How, how would we reallocate these um, these emitters? But you could also have problems with just individual missiles. And if you didn't have approval to fire in the degraded mode from the pre-planned fire point, then you would you would have to reduce the number of missiles that you would fire in the salvo. So, yeah, you, uh, even now I can just go, wow, yeah, that this would, was the sort of thing you had to try and um, take into account. But only by changing the priorities against that individual sub-target could you change, could you stop missiles all going, biting off on the same emitter. And, and that's that's why it was really tough to uh, to to come up with the plan, even in when everything's working, let alone when when stuff starts falling over, you know, you get bad missiles or you get uh, an aircraft not make the push. So, and, and as somebody who's definitely not schooled in the art of electronic warfare, um, I'm thinking about the uh, the pictures I see of, of radar signals and I'm thinking about side lobes and that kind of thing. And then I'm thinking about this thing in the parachute and it's directly above it. So is it the side lobe that it's going to see? It's not going to be the main beam of... Um, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I can't answer that, but you, you're generally heading in the right sort of directions. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Fair sorry. enough. Um, no, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. So, uh, and what um, did the missile weigh then? I mean, it looks fairly sizable. I think uh, Harm is like a thousand pounds, or it's a thousand pound yeah. class weapon. Is the same I, thing? I'm gonna. I'm, I haven't looked this up, and I'm sorry. I'm gonna go with something like four, five hundred kilos. So, yeah, more than an air-to-air missile. Not as much as a bomb. I'm, I'm sorry, I can't be much more helpful than that. I'd have to Google it just like you. Uh, and actually, there's not a lot of information out there now. Um, uh, you know, in, in preparation for this chat, I went onto the MBDA website. They don't declare it anymore. And, um, you know, you're just left with what you could find on Wikipedia. But, um, yeah, it, it, it's reasonably hefty as missiles go, like any air-to-ground missile. But, um, yeah, somewhere around, I'm going to go with somewhere like four or 500 kilos. You you previously described yourself. I think this is actually before we hit record. This is the first time we ever chatted, and you'd said, "Well, you know, I'm gonna, I, I, I'm interested in coming on, and and you know, but I got to be careful because all the QYs are going to say, what's what's this uh, uh, Q, QFI doing talking about weaponeering and stuff.' Yeah. So so you have your your so your alibis there. But um, I just wondered then, from from an employment point of view, did you? If you think about the wild weasel mission as it is in the U.S. Air Force, United States Navy, you know the U.S. U.S. Armed Forces, um, and the schools and the level of, you know, sort of knowledge that's been built or was built over decades, uh, and then you've got the RAF doing this for twenty-five percent of the time you were on Nine Squadron. Did you have to learn a lot about the threat? Did you did you do did you have did you invite guys? to do exchange tours with you who were coming from weasel platforms in the US what what sort of i mean how much did you have to know about uh, we, about the weaseling mission i do not think we in all honesty we were a patch on the cjs and um so yeah sorry sorry guys i that's my honest opinion you know for my colleagues i don't want to sort of talk us down but i just think we didn't do it enough um we had good information you know as you would imagine any nation would have the best available information on threat systems and stuff like that i just i don't think we trained often enough to like when we if we had a build-up and we did some exercises in germany with them um, with the luftwaffe and their ecrs and stuff like that it's like anything the more you do it the better you get and i do understand the cjs do have to do um you know some air-to-air -air 
stuff that's part of their force protection role. So I guess they have to swing away from the pure harm bit and and you have to obviously come back to this stuff often enough. So, yeah, I don't think we did it enough. Um, in terms of exchanges, the exchange between the tornado forces are generic and um, the US armed forces generally was with the EA-6. So it was more with the jamming side of things. And that's another interesting thing to say about the way the RAF structured its squadrons in terms of we had EWOs and EYs, but EYs were the, the kind of subject matter experts, but really think of them as being experts in the aircraft DAS. Um, so the, the jamming pods, the RHWR and things like that. And obviously, you know, when it came to running a plan, you'd certainly ask your EYs about to just kind of give, give us a brief key points about the threat that you were, um, whose mares you were planning to, uh, to penetrate. But when you, when you hear, when I heard the stories, you know, Star Babies, you, you were, um, EY training or um, electronic warfare officer training, it sounded in a much, much greater depth than than, than we did. And um, I think so that probably places the RAF's attempt at seed stroke deed in, in a proper context. I think I think perhaps we realised that we weren't in the same league as those guys and maybe as a result we're not going to brag um, and talk up our capability that perhaps we couldn't back up with, um, you know, with, and deliver on. But I think, you know, as I said, really, I think the, the main benefit, we could surprise the enemy and say, look, we can do this. And there were some systems we had a very good capability against. Um, and that would have been an unpleasant surprise to those operators uh, on the um, on the enemy side. But I think in that situation, recognize that, you know, talk to your CJ and your Prowler guys, say, look, OK, this is how we can help. You know, do you want it? You know, we can offer that. And if nothing else, and in these modern well, modern days where you've got double-digit SAMs, you're forcing them maybe to engage the, the missiles, the um, the alarm, rather than the strike package. You might be able to run them out of missiles for that um, or bring other, other, some other novel capabilities to chip away at the SA, doing something unusual, something different. Um, you know, I think it always would get SAM operators' attention if warheads are detonating uh, close by and they think, what the hell was that, you know? Um, so I think that that's really what what we had to offer. Maybe you've already answered this question when you talk about you know being able to self suppress. Um, you you mentioned the original uh, ambition behind Alarm being corridor su- suppression during the Cold War, and, and I, I guess most people listening to this will be able to understand or imagine that scenario. So, what was the new imaginary um, sort of scenario then for Alarm? when you were there then that the, just the self suppression or did, did you think, well, if there's a big ATO, we're definitely going to be called in on to go and hit some SAMs somewhere in the, in the theater of operations. I think that the majority of it was likely to be self suppression. The, the challenging thing with moving the target um, location was that we would superimpose the iron bomb, iron bomb fire point on the, um, on the the uh, the sub target where the where the missile was located, so instead of having this conventional display, we would just fire off a range, and and um, and and that way you could move things around, and obviously that might compromise your ingress in terms of making the best uh, use of load of terrain and and um, radar shadow and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of threat systems, you know, generically it'd be like a single digit formal. Soviet Union, Strait Warsaw Pact, and and some of the export um, French systems. 
stroke legacy American systems that have been, um, you know, exported around various parts of the world. So um, that's the sort of stuff we were generally training to. Um, and I think, yeah, the self-suppression stuff would be, I think, the main thing that we could offer to, to the package. And of course, the other thing to, you know, you'd have to deconflict that with other operators and, you know, clear avenues of fire. Well, you need to make sure people aren't above you because they, the missile would climb to height. And, you know, you, you can't have that going through somebody's height block if they're in front of you. You'd want to make sure that you had a clear field of fire for that. Yeah. Maybe again, this is another one you've already answered by absence of of information rather than than by things you have said. But harm is well known to have a a um, harm as sensor mode where you can pull up what the seeker is seeing and use that to find and and, and target sensors. It also has a target of opportunity mode and and a self protection mode. Did you have any of those sorts of capabilities? No, no. Um, really, it was a case of that we could uh, interface with the missile download. The coordinates to it and check that that link was working but we didn't really get um, any indication of what the seek was seeing while the missile was still on the aircraft the back from what i can remember there was a, a button press that would happen about 15 seconds to launch which would trigger trigger the thermal battery in the um in the missile itself and that was the first time then then the rest of the missile was being powered so the the power that it got from the aircraft wasn't for the whole missile at that point as I can recall, anyway. So no, we didn't didn't have any of those any of those things. So if we're self defense would be where you you maybe worked out the range at which you could um, abort your target and turn away at high G and out and kinematically defeat the missile as long as their missile is fired from the position you're expecting it to be. So if they've moved it like even a, like a mile closer to you, it looks like it's on the same azimuth and you fired your you get you get the spike. You get the uh, indications of being locked up, and you think, "Oh yeah, it's where it, it's at." It's the brave person that's going to press on into your fire point and go. No, I can, I can, I can um, outstick him, or I can at least get my weapon away because he might just be on the same azimuth but closer to you. And, and, and um, so that's the only sort of self protection you would get, as if if it was the the site that you were targeting that had fired at you, but nothing like um, the integration that's on the CJ. Were your were your tolerances? I mean, it might have been an arbitrary number you just gave, but one mile. But were your tolerances for threat reactions and things like that, and the self protection capability, were they really that tight? I we could do some limited modelling at our level, at squadron level, with a threat system, and um, and and work out with a. It was a generic platform rather than specifically a tornado, but you could put the sort of parameters that would were reflective of our capability into it but no i i i don't honestly recall and I, I think it would be like defense of the homeland where you were going to be starting to call the um differences in where where it's pitched up compared to where you thought it was going to be a mile okay i'm gonna i'm gonna press in and, and um because it's not like a, a an air defense fighter with a pd radar and you get you can actually see where the enemy is where he's firing at you there's no no lag from AWACS or anything else it's real-time information you can see exactly where they're at and even then it's a bold person that decides to go right i'm going to abort at this range and now i'm going to see the missile just drop short of my canopy you know i don't think anyone's going to do that so no there wasn't really any kind of formal tolerance as a simple answer to your question tell us then a little bit about brimstone that's the missile that's hanging off on, at, at a jaunty angle on yeah. those um 
So I chose this picture because this, I think, is one of the fits that could conceivably have been used for destruction of enemy air defences. So the legacy brimstone was originally designed for targeting um, armoured vehicles and tanks in, in column, effectively, or in a, in an, a sort of formation as employed by the, um, the former Soviet Union. So obviously it's still in service and, and I, can't, I can't remember too much about it, but I think in terms of destruction of enemy air defences, benefits of carrying brimstone would be where, and you would choose to carry it potentially where the the threat systems you were aiming to target were mounted on, on chassis like uh, you know the like the SA6 gainfall you know the, and the straight flush radar you know that's all track chassis you know generically without I'm not kind of giving away too much it's an armored vehicle isn't it basically so you know the seeker would be potentially you know, potentially have a capability against that and the beauty is you don't have to overfly the target um, before that and before the uh, the UK took cluster munitions uh, cluster bombs specifically BL755 or IBL755 out of the inventory because of the um, the mines uh, issue and the treaty there, that that would have been the, a, a weapon of choice. But I can well, one thing that I can really say, I, I did an exercise in um, in Germany in the Hohenfels range, and we knew where the system was. It was it was a, it was an SA six radar, straight flush radar, uh, and I could only positively idea at the last last moment. You know, it had camouflage netting on. It was in the open. It wasn't like it was um, in woods as you would you would expect to find, you know, in perhaps Ukraine or, or whatever else. So, again, a big shout out to the guys who flew the F-105 and were doing Iron Hand missions and stuff like that. How, in the face of the handheld um, um, small arms like AAA, SAMs, how they got kills. I mean, they even strafed these sites. How they how they did that is just cojones the size of, you know, watermelons, I have to say. And it's so hard to get an ID, you know, if, if that's the requirement, pause ID of the target from the rules of engagement, really late to get that. And that's, you know, and I wasn't even being shot at and I knew where it was. So the target bars pitched up bang on where it was. And even then at the last minute, oh yeah, it's an SA6. They could only just look the radar. So uh, the benefit of the, um, of the brimstone would be that you could at least loft your, um, the alarms into the area they uh, are established or have impacted maybe forcing the threat system to shut down and then you, you've so you've maybe arced around the target area until they're in the they've impacted or in the parachutes and then turn in to fire the brimstone but you wouldn't have to um, overfly the target so that's a beauty given that you know you probably have troopers with you know, um, SA-14, SA-18, you know, and any other handheld SAMs and, and like AAA around the system that you're trying to hit and they're trying to protect. So that that's kind of why I put it put it on there because the, in terms of the other weapons we might use, well, you know, it'd be a, P, a PGM in terms of like a, a GPS guided weapon. Can you get accurate enough coordinates? You know, obviously the capabilities of the river joint and Nimrod R1 still, you know, highly classified. But how do you communicate that? You know, how do you even if you if you're talking about it, reference the bullseye or something like that. Depending on how far away the bullseye is, your just the, your um, angular errors could be quite significant, and, and uh, you don't have to miss by much before the fragmentation is you know going to have no effect um, on the radar dish or something like that. And obviously, we saw Star Baby take down the Mosul SA3, and and you know that was 
because you could do that from 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 medium level and all the stuff we're talking about really is low level that was really what we trained to low level soft suppression low level low level seed um of course if we had gone into the medium level em environment then yeah we maybe we would have done the same thing that he did on the day but in no way did we train to that it, it just seemed barking mad to be flying and trying to uh, deliver a pgm straight and level with our platform and its maneuverability in, in a mez that um you know you may be suppressed or maybe not so, so if i understand this correctly and i think you mentioned uh, brimstone briefly in our last episode you talked about it having the capability and you you've kind of inferred again the same um you know to, to look at a scene and pick a target um so is it was it as simple as just ripple firing that into uh, you know towards a set of uh, coordinates or did you have to did you have to point it at something get it to recognize it was there hand it off to the missile and then it goes off the rails uh, you, you would um it was going to coordinates and um the the, the a missile can have search areas defined and um and that helps so uh, and you know, it gets to the end of the area and then you know maybe it's going to self-destruct or, or or stuff like that so yeah it, it's not you don't again do you get indications of what the seeker is seeing because quite often the seeker may be starting to look after its left the aircraft so yeah again it becomes hard to quantify whether you have achieved the effects that you are looking for it might only be after the after the event that they replay the tapes from the rj or the whatever ew asset you've got there and go yeah he was transmitting and now he's not mm -hmm. and that coincides roughly with the impact of um of the missile so yeah and bda you know recce of the area by national assets or or tech tech recce uh air assets so yeah that's um yeah it's hard to quantify as as has been highlighted by south avia and other people really hmm. it's it's a cool missile we, we were talking before we hit record about um somebody we we both know um he showed me tapes of brimstone uh, they were unclassified but he, he couldn't release them to me because they uh, were proprietary um, but they were from tests in Nevada, um, and they showed the missile. So they had an ATV, and they had a, a rubber dummy or something, um, a blow-up doll, whatever it was, on the back of it. It's a radio-controlled ATV. Yeah. Um, and the missile had been obviously programmed to take out the driver. Um, so that's that was the level of sophistication they got to that that it wasn't just the vehicle or the truck or the you know the general locality you know get a. A sort of a, an indirect sort of weapons effect type thing it was that the missile was able to identify the rubber dummy on the back of the thing and hit him um which i thought so, was impressive yeah that, i can't i can't comment on on that level it might have been something particular to that trial but i can say that you know when i first got to the to the squadron you know 31 were the subject matter experts so that's the jet behind me the 31 squadron also based at maran they were the experts on um on the what I'll call the legacy brimstone. And that was really designed, again, Cold War requirement to, to be able to take on advancing Soviets or sort of pack motor rifle divisions without overflying them. Salve off missiles, they go into a, into a search pattern of a particular ge geometry and, um, and engage them autonomously. Kind of, again, kind of felt that we weren't going to see rules of engagement that were going to allow that. Because again, you know, can you what, what level of certainty have you got that the seeker is going to recognize military vehicle or not bite off on a, a pickup truck as a, a civilian vehicle as a military vehicle and engage that instead um 
but the, the the major step forward really was when we got dual mode seeker brimstone so dms brimstone that was a an excellent weapon to have because it gave you a moving target capability uh or capability against the moving targets and so what you are identifying really is that yes the missile could could engage with great precision and using a warhead that was designed to take on a military um you know uh, armored vehicle so explosively formed projectiles and things like that so it's going to go through your, your average um toyota hilux which is uh, you know favored by daesh or any other insurgents of choice it's going to go through that like a knife through hot butter and um but there's relatively little or no fragmentation so you get the kill kinematically speaking from the molten metal cake molten metal slug going through your hilux at high velocity and it's going to take care of everyone inside but but in terms of collateral damage is next to nothing hmm. so up until that point we've been relying either on strafe or various workarounds with a laser guided bomb and, and you know I, I generally say that i felt the us jtacs were squeamish about using us because you know everyone else is carrying around 500 pound class weapons and we are carrying a thousand pound class weapon you know the uh, uk enhanced paveway too so gbu 34 or i'm a bit fuzzy on the numbers but yeah i think uh think of a, a paveway to uh so a thousand pound class weapon lgb head and, uh, G and gps guidance twice so they're seeing twice the weight they're thinking twice the frag twice the collateral damage risk and, and generally speaking they didn't favor using us for that reason i've even had situations where they'd rather use their own artillery i'm going why are we even here why are we even here we talked about giving our bombs air experience because people would you know yeah we, we were favored assets for um doing shows of force and stuff like that because learn fast is what we did and the targeting pub was great with the rover link but but yeah they were a bit squeamish about our weapons i know i've dived down a rabbit hole here sorry about that no that's a good one because i was going to ask about that anyway um i i wrote uh, an article on the tornado years ago for uh, one of the magazines and, and i'd written in there about a, a, a data modem that the tornado had this was the gr1 pre-gr4 pre days so special forces could set a laser designator on the ground walk away be out, yeah. out of the area and the tornado could trigger the the laser designator to to, to designate and then drop a bomb on it and yeah. i had i had um some air commodore from somewhere furiously demanding to know who who told me that and and so on and so forth but it wasn't secret it wasn't it wasn't classified it was just not something that was talked about very much but yeah. i wondered you've just mentioned rover uh, which is a data link um i don't think we've talked about that yet right. and you've talked about low level shows of force um did you do any work with special forces guys um you know what what were you because uh, and, and and you might not want to answer that which is fine but but i'm, I'm just curious to know sort of if you weren't really sort of in um, demand from USJ tax, were you supporting Brits on the ground, Aussies on the ground? What, what were you doing? I just think what, what I've highlighted is they were squeamish about employing weaponry from us, I think. And we made concerted efforts to brief them on the weapon we had and the fact that they, if they had their figures for danger close for the US class weapons, they need to make sure they used ones that were specific to our weapon because the bomb body is different you know the forging might be different the frag pattern's different and to highlight look it's not it's not twice the frag it's not twice the collateral damage risk just because it's twice the weight that doesn't doesn't uh, mean 
jack really but i mean no we we were still used and and you, you know the whole principle of a lot of the operations over iraq post the second gulf war was having on-call cows it was called x cows and, and that so anywhere in the area of iraq if there were troops in contact that they could have an air asset overhead within a given period of time 20 minutes seems to ring a bell so there were obviously certain hot spots and and where those were we would be um doing you know so uh, overwatch and now that could be as you uh, talked about the rover downlink the beauty could be that the, the there would be a jtac or a forward air controller in a um, headquarters and he can see our rover feed as we go um, around various sites that have been used historically by the by the enemy by insurgents so it was possible they would go back to these places so you know they got us doing something useful whilst being on call rather than just droning around i think i certainly felt that there was a deterrence effect from hearing you know fast jets overhead and, and that was something i i really tried to use so um i can remember i had a friend who was on the ground in um in basra for example and um you know i maybe come off task and go to the tank in one of the orbits not far away take on gas but the first the first pass i did i would make sure i was going fast over the whole of basra so you get the you know <laughs> over the whole of the city going look if you're thinking of doing something unpleasant think again because we're here and 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 i understand that there was a considerable feeling of reassurance that we were overhead from the from the troops on the ground in basra to know to hear that sound to know that they've got somebody watching out over them um you know in that way so yeah the the rover link was excellent for the the jtac to be able to say or pan left a little bit what's go up what you know what's that you know um or you know you can just agree that that is something um hostile and worth worth engaging he can give you clearance based based on on what he can see and if you were to, to compare compare that uh, rover link feed from our lightning three pod the Raphael lightning three with the tiled the the resolution was just so much better we had to be a lot lower with tiled um you know and if you also include i think you've alluded to this when you've been in the talk about being in the sim in the tornado some of the tv screens in the back seat were very old and the resolution was pretty poor so it doesn't matter how good the targeting pod is if you're still looking at them at the at the feed through a 1970s tv tv type screen you're going to struggle to ba- break out the the uh the point of interest or the target it might be blazingly obvious when you look at the the tape feed on our um, debriefing ground station why couldn't you see it well we had sun on the screen and it's this 1970s tv screen but we got amlcd um screens in the back seat and that really helped with the resolution but um yeah the lightning three had brought so many capabilities not least the rover link so yeah we i think we were popular with um with all the coalition partners jtax not least because we were also allowed to oper- operate as singletons which is something the um you know the f-16s couldn't do we, we had the approval to do that so we could split split assets and and um you know we'd join up again if there was a troops in contact situation hmm. but um i like to think that you know we are flexible you know we in terms of all the customers we really wanted them to, to come up with uh, what effect do you want from us so you know without going into too many details some of the customers would want overwatch without a covert overwatch for example so you didn't want to be so close 
that you're dropping noise on a on an area. So if their customers are doing something and they want the element of surprise, you don't want a jet jet noise orbiting. You know, if you were on the ground, you go, "What's that?" You know, somebody's circling over the top. Does that mean if they weren't doing that before, is something about to happen? You could be spoiling somebody's surprise. Um, so you know, it's just important, and I think it's doctrine that the Air Force still follow. And I really, I think it's a great one. It's like, what effect do you want? You tell us what effect you want. We can tell you what we're carrying that can give that effect and give you a, a range of options, perhaps. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's the way I, I kind of felt it. It was some frustration that we felt that perhaps there was some reticence to em employ our, the weapons we were carrying. And I think it was really down to lack of knowledge on their part. This is this is post two thousand three, obviously. Um, yeah. Because that's uh, so. so um, <clears throat> the nature of the um, enemy changed after that, didn't? It? I mean, uh, so Saddam Hussein was was one thing. So you had flown the no fly zone, um, yeah. doing response options. You talked about that in in detail last time, um, and I think I asked you about you know the idea of of you know getting shot down or being captured or anything like that and, and how that impacted you and, and whether your family were worried and that kind of thing. Um, one of the things that's characteristic of talking to people who flew in Afghanistan and Iraq in those years um, was, you know, Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, um, Daesh, whatever you want to call them. The fact that if you were captured in those days, at that point, you were definitely going to be starring in your own, you know, home homemade uh, movie. Um, mm. Whereas, you know, you might have stood a chance if Saddam Hussein's bunch had captured you. So I'll repeat the question. When, when, it, when it comes to flying as a singleton then uh, over Iraq in post-2003 uh, with all those foreign fighters coming in and their jihadi um, sort of objectives, did, did that give you pause for thought? Did you have – I mean, do, do you push it from your mind? Do you think – you know, the tornadoes – I think about the F-15. So the F-15 has <clears> – <throat> you know, some pretty stringent asymmetric maneuvering limitations. And we saw in 2011, I think it was, there was an F-15E that went down over Libya. Um, you know, GBU-12 came off the airplane, he maneuvered the airplane asymmetrically, and the airplane departed control flight, they had to punch out. Right. And, and they got rescued, I think, by CIA guys on the ground in, in Libya. They got, they got very lucky. So, um, you know, but but do you do you think about that? Do you do you force the possibilities from your mind, or do you embrace it and say, "Well, here's gonna, this is going to be my plan," and and do you even go as far as considering what you would do if you're going to be captured? Do you do you take your own life, or you mm. know, I, I hope this doesn't sound like a silly question, but I you no, know. not at all. No, um, you're you often asked the kind of really thoughtful questions like that, which gets to the uh, the love of the issue. Um, so we were not fighting Daesh at the time, to be clear, that the I think the the people that I thought were most akin to that would be uh, Moqtada al-Sada's um, group. So if we were flying around the eastern side of Baghdad, Sada city, that that's an area where we thought that, that, that these people would be. Uh, and yeah, coming down somewhere around there would be would be suboptimal. Um, I, I think we probably still had more value alive than dead. So whereas the Daesh, I think, are more likely to just, um, you know, as you say, make a video, you know, with one ending to it. And um, I, I think generally speaking, before the first mission, you you know, you've got your head full of all the induction briefs and and the various special instructions, the CSAR procedures and things like that, that you would follow. So I never I think I might have said this before. I never slept that well before that first mission. But after that, you know, it's amazing how things can become routine. Um, I can't. 
you know, confess to it now, but I think I got about one hour sleep before going. Uh, but, you know, I just thought, well, the guys on the ground again, next, next to no sleep. I'm not going to go, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't sleep last night. I'm not going to go, no, you're going to go and do the business. And you slept, I slept like a baby the next night and that was no problem. Um, and once you, so yeah, once you're in, into the flow of things, then, um, yeah, it just, it, it became fairly normal. I, I think, you know, when, when I understand people like John Peters and John Nickel had had a chat about what they would do if they got shot down and then obviously got confronted with that situation and, and um, the, the weapon jammed. I mean, we were still flying when I was operational with the Wolf PPK, which is a pop gun as far as, um, you know, pistols go. You know, you're better off throwing the weapon at the enemy than uh, trying to, you know, employ it as a weapon system. So um, I, I just kind of thought, well, I'm... Um, I'm going to do my best. I think, you know, you, you have to cultivate a, a bit of warrior spirit, honestly, and go. So I did carry extra knives and stuff with me, but just stuff I could fold up, and put in my pocket. And but my mindset was to know, know my procedures, know my survival equipment to do the best I could and fly smart. I always felt that if I flew smart, that was going to be fine. I think we also had the benefit of having two engines rather than just the single engine on the Viper. Uh, and I did have engine failures. I had a, a mechanical failure uh, in the Basra area and um, had to shut the engine down and, and, and fire the extinguisher into both engine bays in case it had gone to, into an uncontained fire and titanium fire and things like that and um, and diverted into Basra. So, but the rest of the time, I don't think we, well, we I know for sure we didn't lose an airplane over either Iraq or Afghanistan through failures so it's a tribute to our engineers but also a tribute to the fact you've got two engines which is better than one uh, if you were to have a failure can you tell us a little bit more about um the the gr4 cockpit so you just talked about the tv screens in the back um yeah. I, th- I don't know if you mentioned it um in the last episode or if we were just talking about it offline but you uh, you, you have talked about the wide field head-up display um yeah you also had a did you have an M- mfd replacing yeah. the yeah we did moving map? yeah so the, the, to compare the GR1 with the GR4, the, the GR1 had a, an old-fashioned uh, microfiche-type map, so you could go off-map and that was it. Um, the, um, the GR4 had a digital moving map and you had a track, um, track line overlay, which is from the uh, mission, mission materials the, from the uh, main computer. So that was good. And then we got updates that would allow us to see um, a simplified weapon status page to see if... You know, we were talking about the um, the status of the, of the alarm missiles, where you could see if it was a full up missile that passed all its um, self tests, or whether it had a had a problem. And, and we had ways of seeing the status of other other laser guided bombs, the EP two, and later the P five four. And that's important because you can then see what the issue is, and then go right of my loser plan. If I had a bad bomb, well, how does that affect the the targeting? To, you know what are the priority designated points of impact so that was great and then later we got a software uplink uh, update that allowed us to see the targeting pod picture and i think that was brilliant i would characterize overall that that a lot of the workload was in the back seat of the tornado but as the weapons became more complex that i think the back seat became became swamped and more more and more information came came forward into the front seat I think we, as front seaters, we're generally slightly envious of the Strike Eagle, where I felt, as far as we understood it, and then of course that may be inaccurate, but we felt that they had access to everyone, everything. Everyone could see everything. 
And I think that's a, that's a real strong point. I think there was a reticence initially for too much information to come through to the front seat because, you know, at the risk of speaking for my back seat brothers and sisters, they felt that we should be looking out and they'd be right. But there's a time and a place, you know, I think that the way around this quandary is training and having a uh, having SOPs that are robust to say, right, at, at certain phases, you are not, everyone is not looking at the targeting screen picture. You know, there's no point in having two sets of uh, eyes and, and both sets of eyes are on the uh, targeting pod picture and nobody's looking out um, for, you know, missiles or uh, threat aircraft. So, um, Broadly speaking, the hardware of the aeroplane didn't really change. So um, flight control systems all the same. The air-to-air missile integration was the same um, and, you know, suboptimal in certain areas. Terrain following radar was the same. Um, it was more avionics and information display. But the HOTAS allowed us to sequence the, the multifunctional display through different um, different pages. So you could toggle through the targeting pod to the weapon status page and things like that. And we could also update the steering of the aeroplane, which was a real core navigator stroke backseater's job. Um, and, you know, you could you could annoy them, not setting out to do that. But but you could you could um, step the steering on, which for a single pilot operator would be like this is required as part of the job. But but there, it could affect their displays. They're what the time early later is saying. But but sometimes the, the vagaries of the system would be that it would step onto the next waypoint. When you didn't want it to so you know front seat could solve it a lot quicker with one rock of a castle switch when the back seat would have to go nav dest waypoint bring the correct waypoint to line and then hit a steering button on on, on the nav on, on the nav uh, kind of like well, a, a hard key so it was a lot quicker for us to do it and it just comes back to crm and training and sops yeah everyone's got information it's better recognize when it's better for one person to be eyes out and the other person eyes in did you feel that you, you mentioned the strike eagle and you talked about you know the, the, the guys in the front and girls in the front having access to everything which is my understanding too but did, did you how did you feel about the tornado as an airplane that you were, you were flying so so uh, the, the reason i ask is that you know it's been said to me more than more than once that the raf is a first-rate air force flying second-rate equipment um you know, was it was it something that you were proud to fly? I mean, I, I, you know, of course you're going to be proud to fly for your nation and in the defence of your nation and, mm-hmm. and be a fast jet pilot and wearing RAF wings. You know, yeah. the brevet. But but was it something that you know you thought? God, I actually, wouldn't mind getting on an exchange, going and flying the Strike Eagle in Seymour Johnson for three years or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about? Yeah, that? I, I think we were aware of the platform's limitations. I think the bit. Our strong points were being flexible, uh, adaptable, you know, and and we had to be because the platform wasn't the strongest in terms of pure uh, aircraft performance. We had some unique capabilities, um, but I can remember, for example, maybe this was, it was more of my first tour because uh, we were still doing some paper planning. But if you can imagine getting a retask, retask a change to the reconnaissance tasking, there was a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth because we would have the Ordnance Survey style maps, so one to 50 thou maps with various different different mapping datums and, and plotting the, the recce runs we were going to do. And they changed the task and it was very mandrolic and we had to, we basically shredded everything. Uh, so we felt that w- we were well behind 
at that point in terms of the planning and integration of the of the system but we subsequently got tampa which was the, the tornado advanced mission planning aid and it was a ver a variant of the system that the harriers had got first i think so um things improved rapidly you know our ability to replan and do stuff um more reactively was greatly enhanced by having tampa uh, and that and that change had happened whilst i was away as an instructor uh, attack weapons between 2000 and 2003 but the um you know i think we also we did ourselves proud i think with re restraint there were times when we're flying with a targeting pod that you know it's been highlighted that if there's cloud in the target area that can affect the contrast tracking of a targeting pod and if you've got weapons in the air and the pod starts to um, become destabilized then the, the chances are if it's a pure uh, laser guided weapon that's going to miss and i'm proud to say that there were times yeah we didn't we didn't drop but then when we did drop we hit the target but there were other coalition assets that were dropping and the weapons were going stray because of the weather now of course there are other modes that you can use and we had a a ground stabilized mode that you you could say okay it's not going to track on the contrast anymore it's going to stabilize on a point on the ground and hopefully the cloud will move out of the way and then you can go back to tracking the target image or the the contrast of it but i'm yeah proud to say that we exercise restraint um and and you know shot disciplines a really important part of being a, a fast jet aviator fighter aviator you know, whichever seat and um sticking to the roe and stuff like that but yeah, I, you know, I think we did look with envy at things like, um, you know, the Strike Eagle as a, as a platform. You know, we say, how can we improve the Tornado? I know. Let's, let's put bigger engines in it, another fin, an air-to-air -air radar. Oh, oh, wait a minute. That's a Strike Eagle, isn't it? You know. Um, but, you know, it was, we spent a lot of its operational life at medium level, and that's a place it was never designed to be. You know, it's a high-wing loader, high-bypass engines. So you needed to use the reheat to get, to get some of the performance but you know if you're at night that's not tactically sound um but we did the best we could because that's what the RAF always does we will improvise we'll we'll try our best to deliver with what we have to hand at the time when we talked the, I think the first time we talked which was not we weren't recording we were just chatting saying hello to each other um I think you said to me there were some things that you were you know, you wanted to share around, you know, the learning experiences and the things that, that could have been done better. And you yeah, know, is, is that is that now a good time to do that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of alluding to kind of forced culture, um, and so my experience coming through as an abinitio on my first tour and subsequently was that the the evaluations were always a step beyond what you were trying to do. So let the phrase mission qualification training, I think it's the one the US Air Force uses, and that when somebody arrives on a squadron and is becoming declared combat ready, and that's the phrase we use in the RAF, well, the combat ready assessment sortie was leading an opposed pair, so a 2v1 with a with a, a Red Baron or a, you know an aggressor aircraft out there. But the qualification you're going to give that person is wingman. Hmm. And, and so we're always testing above at the next level. So I think that the phrase they use, we're looking for a tactical wingman, but domestic leader. So, for example, if your your leader had battle damage, you could lead them back for a pairs approach or, you know, could lead them back sa safely and sensibly in a domestic sense rather than sort of necessarily a tactical sense. But we're always evaluating people at that higher level. And when I got the, my first weapon away, I was uh, a wingman 
and I was leading a four-ship, supervised by everyone else. And it was a very simple profile. But I don't think that's right. Uh, and and but the thing was at the time in the culture, you certainly didn't want to go. Uh, no, I don't want to do that. You know, you you want to you want to get down with the cool kids and and get your badge, your combat ready badge, and to be part of the squadron. And, and you know, you're not going to turn away from a challenge. So you're going to you're going to step up and do your best. And of course, the standard required change. So if you're, you're for that a given mission, leading an opposed pair, if you are qualifying as a wingman they'd uh, have a given standard but if you were getting your pairs lead qualification then the standard obviously would be because you'd be going to war in as a, the leader of a pair then clearly you have to be um doing a, a better job as befits that qualification but um i i've talked to in the build-up to our interviews to a, a friend of mine who has experience on the air defense version of the tornado albeit limited because he didn't pass his workup, a combat ready workup as a wizzo, as a backseater, came on to the Tornado GR as a wizzo, then was a patch wearer, and then crossed over as a, as a pilot, but didn't keep his um, patch wearer qualification. He's got the knowledge, but he didn't do the course in the front seat. And he's now flying the Typhoon. And so my question to him was, okay, we could always mix people up. So my first operational tour, I was flying with a highly experienced uh, weapon school graduate backseater so yeah he's looking after me and, and and mentoring me keeping me in the straight and narrow that's great but what do you do when you don't have that anymore everyone's single seat yes you've got obviously cross cockpit supervision between the aircraft and the answer is it's much more a building block approach which is exactly how the u.s air force and as i understand the u.s navy has been doing it for years so I, I hold my hand up at this point and say, this is very much my nature. I like, I'm very systematic and, um, you know, I like to see people get good training, to receive good training that builds up gradually and uh, you consolidate and achieve levels before moving on. But I just don't feel that it was like that at the time. There are lots of great people, you know, all doing their best and, and we delivered when it mattered. But that was just part of the culture that it was always the, the level above. And I did Red Flag Mission Command on my second tour, and and I hadn't regained my uh, pairs lead status, let alone let alone my fours lead status. So you can imagine, I was quite daunted. I had done the tactical leadership program with NATO, so I had led large force employment, uh, cameos and stuff like that, and planned them and things like that in a NATO environment. But that was, that was three years prior. That was whilst I was on my first tour before I was a tactical weapons instructor. But we're on red flag, and they say, Nick, do you want to have a go at Mission Command? Yeah, I think. <laughs> I, I didn't get a lot of sleep that week. Let's put it that way. The nerves were considerable. But I, I flew with a, an experienced backseater. He really stepped up. He was great. And, yeah, it was, you know, it was okay. It was it, probably not, not going to set the world on fire as leads go. Uh, and I was working with some great guys. You know, I can remember leading, talking to the OCA Lead. He was an F-16, sorry, F-15C guy, and he was on his workup. But I just think they had people at a more appropriate stage of their qualifications doing this stuff. So it was very much a go in at the deep end, and and um, you know it's quite traumatic. But we, you know, we muddled through and did a did a reasonable job. I just think they, I know they don't do it that way anymore. And my my friend speaks very highly of of how things are done now and how. You really have to earn your spurs um, because being a wingman, a good wingman, is not easy. 
Mm. You know, being in the right place, initiation, the turn to the right place. Um, as a leader, you, you obviously, you're a stable platform, but you are making kind of longer range decisions. Uh, and um, in some ways, you know, yes, you, as long as you're stable, it's the wingman's job to stay visual, to stay in formation, you know, call as fuel to you and stuff like that. But the RAF always had people as thinking wingmen making maybe more empowered than I perceive some of the um, other other nations to the extent that when they went on exchange, they were kind of chirping up with helpful stuff and they eventually had to realize, yeah, they got told to shut up, you know, shut up. And, you know, I want to hear two on the check-in, uh, bingo, out of fuel and lead. I think you're on fire because you don't know. And uh, they had to learn their place and just really fit in, just wingman, be a wingman. And, um, and and my friend talks about this kind of having to make this adapt adaptation to, you know, being single seat and how things how things now run, as I understand it. Mm. But I would be, you know, I'm sorry if if I've offended any of my former colleagues by, you know, being as honest and perhaps critical about it in this forum. But you know, and I would hold my hand up and say I'm a very systematic guy, and I do I do like, like you know, my nickname or call sign on my first tour was Spock. You can probably get an idea why it didn't really stick, but that was that was my call sign on my first tour. But you know, I have seen having been instructor, it works really well. You give people the phase brief, they do the simulator, and then you do objective based training airborne. And as you you know, make sure that just because you've done you've had exposure to the objective, exposure is not necessarily competence and you might need some more sorties some consolidation but if you get that right and you get the foundations in place then you've got a more capable operator so yeah that's brutally honest next version of of how things were what does uh what, what, what does he say now happens then so it is now more building block yeah okay very much so yeah um he said that, uh, you know, pairs and fours lead stuff. It's a really big, um, step up in terms of the complexity and the number of decisions to be made. Um, you know, one of the things people who are two seat operators don't fully appreciate. And I got an insight, a little bit of insight into it with, um, being an instructor where I was single pilot and a solo student who was single pilot. You know, you, you're, you're getting a feel for their essay from the, the tone of their voice. Is there, are their radio calls standard? Are they made at the right point? Or are there pauses? Are they, can you, do they sound stressed? That there's all sorts of essay you can pick up over the radio and from other things. And are they flying the, the aircraft on speed? Is it, you know, if the SOP speed is 420 knots, are they on speed? Or are they climbing and slowing down because they're not sure where they are, which is what people sometimes do. In, in, you know, um, if you're mapping stop, watching poor weather and, and, and uh, are not certain of your position. So he talked about how um, he, when he was fairly new to the new to the platform, there was just one of the, he was in a four ship, he was number two, I think. And then the number three as an element leader told him to climb into this block, flow back to cap and reset. He just got a sense that my friend's essay had just kind of, dipped a bit and you just get back out simplify mm -hmm. everything rebuild SA and then recommit with with full, full SA and a good picture and i just think that's amazing you know that's a, such a high level of um cooperation and, and awareness of of how your team are operating and being able to influence things from some subtle cues 
that the people who've flown, including myself, you know, mostly two seat guys go, oh, CRM in a single seat world, that's that's a, like an oxymoron, you know, doesn't doesn't exist. And you see a lot of airline pilots go, oh, you single seat fast jet mates, you know, don't know anything about CRM. Au contraire, Blackadder. It, you know, there's a lot, as I've highlighted, and it's a lot more nuanced than than they fully appreciate. So, tell us about something that isn't nuanced. Then, um, your ejection. Right. Yes. You often ask about memorable, uh, uh, memorable sorties. So, yeah. Um, so, the background to the sortie: I have uh, left the front line. I am an instructor pilot up on the tornado uh, conversion units. So, I, as an instructor pilot, would do the ab initio, so first, uh, you know, first tour guys, conversion to the aircraft type, but I would also do check rides, as I had done on the frontline squadrons, check rides on pilots every year. So it was a day check, a night check by day, uh, a night check as well, and also the instrument flying test. And, um, so that sort of stuff would be done in a, a, a trainer variant of the tornado. So we haven't really alluded to that. I mean, the, the difference is really is just one TV screen slightly offset. We've got replicated controls in the back seat. Um, so stick, throttles, uh, wing sweep. We could only drop the gear by uh, the blowing it down on the emergency system. And we had some override switches on the thrust reverse. But um, there was enough. I could, get, I could land the airplane from the back seat. Uh, and we practiced that occasionally. But for, for the rest of it, you know, it was off the trainer version was often used if we were short of that assets on our frontline squadron, and it was also something that could be used not on a war roll, but um, you know, if you're on peacetime training, you needed the airframe to make up the numbers, you would still use the training aircraft. So, the uh, the sortie profile was one of these uh acceptance checks, it was a pilot check on uh, somebody who'd come off the front line and was um joining. The conversion unit as a staff pilot and he had had some leave having come back from an operational deployment and hadn't flown for a while generically the um the sortie profile involved a bit of low level um a trip to the weapons range for some delivery profiles including the the toss attack i talked about in um one of the previous episodes um that that's kind of a handling exercise and and also made up part of the instrument rating test so we did some of that we did some of the high angle of attack handling that we, we talked about with the spin prevention and incidence limiting system. Um, we do swept approach and then into the circuit um, for doing um, degraded um, flight control system work and um, single engine circuits, but say single engine with the one engine throttle back to idle. So we the sortie had progressed normally. We'd get in towards the, um, the end of it and... Um, We've rejoined the circuit, having done done the uh, swept approach to uh, to overshoot, and we turn down wind and and put the um, he puts the gear down. In the tornado, when the gear goes down, it goes through a uh, self test. Um, it's got two gains: one high gain for taxiing in on the ground, where you need a, a wider deflection on the nose wheel. I think it's plus or minus sixty degrees from the memory, but clearly that's too much on the takeoff roll and landing roll. So a low gain is automatically selected when you put the um when you put the gear down uh, but um once the gear's gone down it goes through a test and we got a warning that it hadn't gone through the test and and so the the, the drills reflected trying to ascertain if the nose wheel was straight or whether it was um 
kind of cocked off to the side. So I put a pan call out to air traffic control and that really just alerted them that something was slightly amiss. And they stood to stood to the um, the fire services. Uh, and so we called downwind for the option of either a full stop landing or uh, a touch and go. So the procedure was to fly a normal circuit Lower the nose wheel onto the onto the runway. Normally, compressing the nose wheel oleo would bring everything to life. The uh, nose wheel steer, steering would engage in uh, low mode, and you would uh, complete a landing. If the nose wheel steering system didn't come to life and it's effectively free casting, you'd um, go around again, stay in the closed pattern, leave the gear down, and then um, drop the hook and land into the approach end cable. The, it was the best way if there was no nose wheel steering to stop the aeroplane that way. If you're using thrust reverse and the nose wheel steering is not engaged and the nose wheel is free casting, you um, could have some challenges maintaining um, directional control because you're really just left with the rudder and then differential braking. So in that situation, if you didn't have a cable available to you, for example, diverting to a civilian airport, then you would use aerodynamic braking down to about 100 knots. And then just try your best to keep it on the runway with the rudder and um, and differential braking. So we uh, we call f- uh, uh, turning finals for for the option, and and we we touch down, lower the nose wheel, and it comes to life. So it's all good, or so I thought. And uh, and so th- at this point, I'll show share the screen and show you. Um, a bit about the the tornado and the thrust reverse and how it can affect the um, the directional control of the aircraft. So this is a picture of the aircraft on the ground with the thrust reverse uh, buckets deployed. Slightly artificial because you would never have the uh, air brakes, which are up here, out at the same time. There was an interlock that if if the air brakes were out and you deployed the thrust reverse, that the air brakes would stow automatically. Um, so with the tornado, the brakes are rubbish. The primary stopping aid really was the thrust reverse. You could stop on the brakes, but they would likely overheat and, uh, and either um, lose effectiveness or overheat the tyres to the extent that um, a fusible plug would blow and the tyres deflate. So with that in mind, after vacation the wrong way, the SOP was to split the throttles. The gearbox logic would see that as an engine failure and close a clutch that could link the two gearboxes before um, shutting an engine down. So in this way, you would generally taxi back on the uh, right-hand engine. And the left one is shut down, but the the, um, the clutch is engaged and the right-hand engine drives both gearboxes. You retain all your utilities, your generators, your hydraulics and the like. Um, there were some unreliabilities with the thrust reverse system. Occasionally it would fail. You had an override switch that would allow you to deploy just one bucket because um, Without the override, it would say, right, there's something wrong with it. I'm not going to give you any of the buckets. But if there were certain crosswind limitations, like I think it was 10 knots crosswind and uh, you could engage it below 140 knots um, with the underwing tanks empty, which is typically the sort of scenario that you would have on landing. So when you were co- contemplating your final landing, you would assess what what's the weather conditions today? Right, OK, I've got less than 10 knot crosswind. So in the event of a thrust reverse failure, I'm going to use override and single engine thrust reverse below 140 knots to slow the aircraft. And if I still haven't slowed enough, then I'll engage the overrun cable about 1500 feet from the end of the runway. 
So, so that's the that's the SOP. Um, what you can see here is with the buckets deployed, they're going to reverse the um, the jet efflux uh, from the the cans, the, the end of the engine back over the fuselage at the base of the fin. The effect that had was uh, reducing the aerodynamic effectiveness of the fin. So you lost a little bit of directional stability in the mid range of thrust reverse before the engines had spooled up enough to generate deceleration that would drive the the nose wheel harder onto the uh, onto the tarmac guaranteeing you traction in that way so my esteemed colleague um had a bit of a um a brain fart a bit of a uh, a coggy and he uh he had selected both um both reverses in a normal way after the nose wheel had uh, come to life life having touched down and he said he was going to use a bit of asymmetric thrust reverse to close the cross drive and and effectively get the aircraft ready for the single engine taxi back but he selected full reverse on one engine but we'd already briefed the weather conditions and i i was too clever and said well it's within the release to service for single engine thrust reverse it's non-standard i'll i'll save it as a debrief point but what happened was very quickly we got some lateral drift built up there had been a phenomenon identified in some of the trials work where when reverse had been um, selected and deployed the aircraft might slide to slightly diverge in a direction that you perhaps wouldn't expect so if you're if you're powering up on the right hand engine you'd expect more retardation to the right hand side of the center line and the aircraft would yaw to the right well it, the aircraft might in the example I've talked about might start to your left initially requiring a bit of right pedal just to keep yourself on the center line but then of course the retarding um, effect of the engine spooling up to max reverse is to pull you right and you've got right pedal in which is what I believe happened so the aircraft very quickly starts to yaw dramatically to the right on the runway towards the um, the edge of the runway and I can see lights coming past so the thing to highlight because this is a, a fighter bomber, it's not a training aircraft. The back seat's not stepped up in any way. You can see in the picture behind you, Steve, the um, the, the cockpit is directly, the, the whizzer, the back seater, or in the case of this sortie, me in the, in the back of the trainer, is directly behind the head box of the guy in the front or the girl in the front. And you, the view you have to directly in front of the aircraft is down the side of the ejection seat box. So it's quite challenging to land the aircraft from the back seat uh, in sort of light crosswinds or, or no crosswind. We use the Fleur repeater to kind of give us a warm and fuzzy as we're, um, you know, tracking, you know, the extended center line on final approach that, yeah, it's all looking good and then start to move our head from side to side by the side of the head box to, um, to maintain SA about how, how close to the edge of the runway is. So we, um, we start yawing dramatically to the right and I'm trying to look at uh, a couple of uh, small magnetic indicators on the glare shield in front of me, which tell me the status of the thrust reverse in the front, and also see how close we are to the edge of the runway that, as the lights go flicking past. It's north of Scotland, it's five o'clock, it's February, so it's kind of dusk, and uh, so the lights were, were helpful. But with a lat lateral acceleration on my noggin, it was very hard to keep my eyes on these little magnetic indicators um it just made my eyes flick and, and i couldn't um you know watch it very easily 
the memory drills in the event of this drift building up on a normal landing was to cancel the reverse and slam to idle. The sim didn't really replicate it and it wasn't trained. So it was part of the boldface quiz. So the, 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 the uh, memory items, the, the vital actions that you had to be able to recite verbatim. But I think it's one thing to write it down and given it's not trained in the simulator, something else to do it for real. And I'd never had it. I'd flown probably about 2000 hours on the airplane. And I'd never had it happen to me in the front seat. Generally speaking, the, the feeling amongst the IPs in the back seat was that the person in the front has got the best view to assess and would be best placed to um, to manage this situation. So I had an override switch, which would allow me to either deploy the thrust reverse from the back seat or turn it off. But most of the time it sat in a middle position where it gave authority to the guy in the front. And that's where it was at landing. So I'm going, is he going to cancel reverse? I'm hoping he's going to do this pretty soon because we're running out of room as we um, skid to the right hand side of the runway. And so that the next slide kind of shows that. So at the bottom of the um, runway, you can see um, you can see some skid marks here where I'm indicating with the cursor arrow. This this is the secondary runway here. The main runway was runway two three zero five. This is runway um, two eight one one. Um, so we yawed dr uh, dramatically to the right. At one stage, it looked like we were pointing back towards the center line, but then the aircraft yawed back to the right again, and I realised I was out of runway. And you can see the skid marks here have gone down off the main service and I actually f I felt the the aircraft give a mild lurch as the right hand main wheel went off the runway into this kind of um, this pocket between the two runways and then I know I'm going across the s secondary runway I know somewhere out there are these aerials the ground is, is pretty rough it's, it's kind of tussock grass and stuff like that and I'm basically going well we're going across the runway now and I can't see what's in front of me and we're still doing you know, about 80, 90 knots. And I call for the ejection at that point. So I think what we can see here, this was taken from a helicopter, but I think you can see the uh, perspex fragments from the, the canopy um, being uh, rocket, uh, removed from the aircraft by rockets. So yeah, this is quite a surreal situation because I have been in the sim on the previous Friday. This is a Tuesday, the incident happens. I've been in the sim on a Friday and it was a training requirement to recognize situations when it was appropriate to eject. So in the sim, I'd um, had to initiate ejection as the controls had burnt through short finals uh, to land on this very runway. So in the sim, when you pull the handle, the, air, the, the simulator freezes. You can look at the parameters in terms of your height above the, the surface, your rate of descent and go, well, yeah, more than a tenth of the rate of descent above the surface. That's probably a successful ejection. You simply push the handle back in, open the canopy, unstrap, and that's the detail over with, generally speaking. And of course, this is, somehow this is going through my mind as it as it goes through overspeed that I'm pulling the handle. And of course, things things don't stop in reality. So the handle went clunk as I pulled it, like it did in the sim. But there's a pause and then a whoosh as the rockets took the uh, the canopy off. Pause, and then yeah, the most mind-bending acceleration as you ride the rocket. I had always got a good posture and made sure I did when I simulated ejection in the simulator. Um, I, I'm one of the generation of people that did ride a, a dummy rig with a quarter charge um, jet provost seat, um, a cartridge seat back in the early 90s. But they stopped doing it because people injured themselves.
Um, but I got good posture, and um, yeah, so I remember seeing my boots. I remember seeing the rocket flare. The, the my vision kind of closed into like um like a tunnel, and I so I remember seeing my boots, and then then the kind of the the sky tilted as as the um as the seat deployed. I remember feeling some um, jerks as the various drogues deployed, and and then the big jerk as the main main canopy deployed, and then um, the the seat you got the, the death grip on the handle uh the ejection seat handle and then as the um as the seat falls away it um it uh, finds its way out through your thumb and there's the seat lying on the grass or at least one of them um so i look up and we had some emergency drills to to carry out and these were drummed into us and all those years and all that repetition made for some solid um solid kind of mode habit patterns on my part but to simply inflate the life jacket and adopt a parachute landing position they'd always warned us if you look down between your feet you're going to misjudge how quickly the ground comes up to meet you and i remember looking down initially going no 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 don't do that look at the horizon and so i i looked at the horizon i got a nice view of the moray firth to the north of RF flossy mouth and saw how quickly the ground's coming up. And I tucked myself into the parachute landing position with my knees tucked in, my elbows up on the parachute risers, elbows tucked in like that and going, oh, this is going to hurt. This is going to hurt. But um, I landed on the grass and rolled out in exactly the way you see paratroopers do in the war movies or, or uh, you know, if you watch any of these sort of uh, trials footage. And it worked a charm. Uh, and I picked myself up. And I just, you know, it's just one of those surreal moments. I've actually ejected and I feel fine. I was expecting to have wrecked my back and and I, and I feel fine. I then swear profusely, mostly at my colleague for having, you know, ostensibly got us in this position and also uh, and myself because I failed to uh, to rescue the situation. Um, the background, we'd lost the jet two weeks before. Uh, they'd had a rear fuselage fire and their controls had burned through as they try to make it to to Stornoway. So I'm thinking, Christ, that's two ejections in two weeks. And um, so, you know, this is where the self-recrimination starts. Um, but because we put the pan call out, the fire service come roaring across the runway and pull up. And uh, this fireman gets out and he's running up to me just as I take my parachute off. He says, you all right? And I went, yeah, I think. And he says, looking at the aeroplane and looking at me, he says, do you want to shut it down or shall I? Because what we can see is the, um, the aircraft has gone up to its axles um, in the grass. It's sat there. The canopy's gone. You can see these ejection gun rods just poking out the top of the, um, the front and the rear cockpits. It's just sitting there rather forlornly. And I'm feeling bad about how badly I've parked it. And I think, well, he doesn't look very confident either. He, he gets to practice maybe once or twice a year lifting us out of the cockpit we play like ragdolls and he tries to identify which switches he would use in, in, in reality. So um, this picture shows the ladders that we used. Um, one ladder, because the engine was still running, we braced against this intake in this direction. And then the second ladder, um, we braced across it and I climb up the steps. You get the smell of cordite from the, the ejection rockets. The cockpit displays are all smashed. It looks a bit different without the seats in there. I safe up the master arming switch and then shut the engines down and uh, and then climb down from the ladder. It's all a bit surreal. And then I see my uh, my oppo who's lying on the grass behind the aircraft 
And as the engines spool down, the, the efflux from the engines is gently sort of making his parachute flutter on the ground. And I think, oh, my God, he's hurt. So I start to run towards him. And he says, lie down, you idiot. Because people have um, hurt their back in ejections. And, and with the adrenaline flowing, they go, oh, I'm fine. And, and all of a sudden they fall over as their spine is finally severed or, or whatever. You've got some sort of injury and it's just the adrenaline that keeps you going. Oh, yeah, I should probably lie down at this point, shouldn't I? So I do. And at this point, Gary comes running across the runway. So Gary is a search and rescue crewman because Aria Flossiemouth have a, or at the time had a flight with two seeking search and rescue helicopters. One was up in the mountains doing a, um, doing some training and the other one had been, um, being rectified by, by the maintainers and had just come up on state. But Gary had seen the ejection grabbed a med pack and come running across the runway to to look after us. Now, Gary had been a, an avionics technician on 617 Squadron when I'd served my first tour. So I knew him quite well. He was, he was a great lad and he quite liked the flight crew. He would um, he would come and, you know, drink with us downtown in, in Lossy Mouth in the nightclubs. And we just really liked the guy. He was, he was switched on. He was very capable. So it was a beautiful bit of serendipity that he's the guy that comes running across the runway and starts to look after us. And of course, after that, they start um, cutting our equipment off us. They put us on backboards, put us in the helicopter and uh, fly us to Inverness Hospital. Um, at this point, you know, I'd like to say a big thank you to Inverness Airport because the RAF brought a VC-10 transport aircraft up to Inverness to, uh, to take us down to Birmingham where the military hospital was. Um, Inverness Hospital just did the initial um, spinal x-rays to make sure that we were okay. We hadn't, you know, really hurt ourselves. My, my, my colleague had broken his ankle on landing. I understand from talking to him, he was slightly distracted by looking down from his parachute of the aircraft he was just sat in. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you can picture it's like a dusk. It was a nice evening. It's calm. And he sees the aircraft. It's quite pretty. And just seeing the strobe lights flashing away gently. Oh, oh shit, the ground wallop. So he, he doesn't enjoy the same, high quality landing that I did and he, and he broke his ankle. But, um, you know, this is all established by Inverness Hospital. And um, and at that stage, I'd say the, the RAF had put a, um, a VC-10 into Inverness. Now, it's not the longest runway in the world. It typically handles 737s and A320 class aircraft, turboprops and stuff like that. But I understand if they if they were to have put a, a VC-10 in, the, in there again, they would have had to rip the runway up. Um, they also stayed open well after normal hours. So I feel a prize idiot for not being able to be, you know, rescue a situation. Uh, you know, I'd let it get out of, out of, out of shape, but we were looked after so well, but there was a degree of irony because we'd looked at, they'd, they'd looked at our x-rays. Yeah, you're fine. So we actually then walked, you know, my oppo with his uh, crutches, we walked uh, to the VC-10. We get to the VC-10, then we're back into the tender-loving clutches of the Royal Air Force, and they tell us to lie down again, and they strap <laughs> us back onto backboards. So again, it's like, my, my back's pretty sore at this point. It's really soft tissue stuff, and it was more comfortable to draw my knees up, but they, of course, want you to lie flat. And like a lot of pilots, you know, I'd had a bit of osteopathy, and, you know, from flying fighters, it's pretty grueling on your neck and, and lower back and stuff like that. So I'd had all that kind of treatment. It's just part of managing that and, and, you know, doing active sporting kind of activities. Um, so they strap us down. Um, we were planning to fly to Birmingham where this military hospital is located. 
Um, but there's fog at Birmingham, and the Vichy Town is not uh, Cat 3 capable, so it can't do auto lands and fog. So it ended up going back to Bryce Norton, which is the main transport hub for the RAF. And we were then driven up to um, the Queen Elizabeth Birmingham Hospital in an RAF ambulance, driven, you know, and looked after by people who were doing, you know, the casualty evacuation from Afghanistan and things like that. So we were in the best possible, best possible care. So, yeah, I feel a bit of an idiot, to be honest, as I've alluded to, but we were looked after so well at every step of the way. Um, when we got to Birmingham, go through all the, all the checks and stuff like that. Um, and, yeah, just, just to share with you, really, that I had a private room and I managed to get some of my own clothes from home and, and my wife had been able to join us as well. And it was very good of the captain to get her on the flight with us, slightly bending some rules there. But she was down with us in, in Birmingham, so I've got a room to myself and you see these these lads from um, Afghanistan who are, have been hit by IEDs and they're double amputees, triple amputees, whizzing up and down the corridors on their wheelchairs, flirting with the nurses, having a laugh. You know, they're just, you know, indomitable spirits. And of course, there would be tough times ahead for them. Um, but seeing them, you know, they, they'd sort of been hurt doing the business in Afghanistan. And there's me training accident in my own room, just with not a mark on me, ostensibly. Mm. Uh, you know, you feel a prize idiot. Um, and I also got to see um, a young lad see his um, dad for the first time. Um, he'd, uh, he'd been in a coma. So when you see that, yeah, it's tough. So, yeah, big shout out to the people in Queen Elizabeth, Birmingham, um, and, and how they look after people. Um, so we were very well looked after. And, and uh, I suppose the ride of the end of the story really is, I come back to the squadron and I've got, um, I had all my stuff cut up, my, all the G-pants and all my flight checklists and everything had gone, impounded by the inquiry. And that had proceeded in the, the two weeks I'd been interviewed and all that sort of stuff. I, I tried to share the learning points that I believe should be brought out for the instructor pilots in the back seat and, um, you know, about memory items and how different it is, how different it can be in the back seat with different controls. It's never really been formalized. But I'd said to myself, right, okay, I'm not going to be rushed back into the air and I'll, I'll go, you know, go when I'm ready. And I literally just got onto the squadron. And there's a good friend of mine, Tarzi, he said, mate, mate, I've got a week to go in the Air Force and I'm out of my pilot check currency because one of the students had, um, that he'd been checking. Had, had clicked on the wrong box on the computer and given him the check ride as well. So extended his currency inappropriately. So he realized he was out of currency. He's going, mate, any chance you could do a, a pilot pilot check on me for my last week of flying in the Air Force? And I'm going, oh, man, this is exactly what I said I wouldn't do. But, you know, there's you, know, you get back on the horse and, and he's an excellent pilot. And, um, you know, I think, well, there's nobody better to go go flying again with and we did exactly the same sortie profile um, back in the back seat and um, because of the winds we were actually landing on the short runway <laughs> and um, we had to use max thrust reverse and, and if the thrust reverse hadn't worked we would have been into the overrun cable but the aircraft gave it the same shimmy that it did before we had our uh, excursion off the side of the runway <laughs> and so we come off the runway and it's a, a, a suitably British way he said you're right mate you've gone rather quiet there I said yeah yeah, last time it felt like that, it didn't end so well. <laughs> it's just, you know, so that, you know, hopefully you can see things didn't go very well. We learned a lot from it. We tried to share that. But at every stage of the way, we were looked after so well. Um, 
you know, a big shout out to people at Inverness Airport, Queen Elizabeth, Birmingham, you know, to all the soldiers that were there. Um, but, you know, I, I was flying two weeks later and, um, you know, they, they looked at the lessons learned. We got some 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 critiquing from the, the uh, inquiry. But, um, yeah, back into the air after just soft, soft tissue, you know, whiplash injuries two weeks later. How, so much of, how much of a surprise, Nick, was the ejection to your front seater then? I did call it. So, yeah, RSOP was to say eject, eject, eject. Uh, and, and I gave it one pause and then, then went for the handle. Was, was so, he expecting that you would do that? I mean, you, you... Uh, yeah, um, I think one of the things they they talked to us about was perhaps we could have considered staying. He had a better view of the of the um, of the ground in front of him. As it happened, as you can see, the aircraft stayed on its on the carriage. But when you watch the HUD recording, because the HUD camera was recording throughout the incident, I was reassured to see how how quickly it happened because you know things go into that slow motion that you hear about as, as your brain steps up, um, it's processing. But it happened really quickly. But in the last few feet, the aircraft does start to sort of go sideways. It was just really counterintuitive to stay with the airplane going off-road. Um, and it was interesting, a lot of the, the navigators came up to me and said, well done, mate, I'm not sure I would have had the courage to pull the handle. They did say perhaps he could have said no stay. But I think he was working, and this is the two seat, the benefit of the two seat crew operations. Is there's been more than one pilot saved by the Wizzo navigator or backseat occupant pulling them out whilst he's re- he's wrestling with an unrecoverable situation. Mm. I think in that situation, yeah, as you can see, we could have we could have stayed, but I just couldn't see what was in front of me, and we were always taught eject in time. So the aircraft did fly again. It took took them a while um, to uh, to fix the damage. The, aircraft, the RAF has a categorization, so Cat 5 is a total write-off, Cat 1 minor damage. So when I parked it, it was Cat 2, but the lift-out didn't go very well, and they made it Cat 3 from some um, some mishaps on the lift-out. But the way the aircraft was lifted out is that it's where the wings um, hinge, the, the, the wing sweep pivot point is a strong point. It's a really clunky, really heavy-duty part of the airframe, so they can attach a crane hoists to that point of the aircraft and they lifted it out that way, but some things went wrong, and it was cap three by the time they finished that. But it did fly again. So, um, well, what did so what did your front seater say then about not deselecting the um, thrust reverser? So, so, so the so the root cause was the uh, asymmetric thrust reverser application, yeah. and instead yeah. of going to mid range, which would have been controllable, he went to full. Um, he should have um, not selected full rever- asymmetric reverse at that stage. It should have been after vacating the runway and just taxiing back. Um, what he should have done is um, rock inboard on the on the on the throttles, which would have deselected both the thrust reverse and the lift dump. The buckets are driven by high pressure air, and they stow in about 0.2 of a second. So the flow reversal, air flow reversal over the um, the fin would have been solved at that point. You get clean airflow over the fin, re-establish some directional control. Perhaps as the engine spool down, you get a little push forward, but you get some clean airflow over the fin. You can either then correct the trajectory of the aircraft with the nose wheel steering and then re-engage the thrust reverse appropriately with both engines. Mostly we would we would select reverse idle and roll to the end of the runway, but clearly for shorter runways, you could um, use max reverse down to... Um, an audio warner at about a hundred knots where 
I think it was 100 knots, I'm not sure, but you get an audio warner where it was warning of ingestion of the um, of the exhaust, which is being blown, having been deflected by the buckets, it's being blown forward mm. and then um, and re-ingested by the engine. So that's hot, hot exhaust. It's There's potential for FOD as well. Any debris that's been dislodged off the runway, lifted up, blown forward into the intakes. Mm. So that was another reason to use reverse, uh, idle reverse, or certainly cancel, cancel the uh, or reduce the max reverse um, as the speed reduced. It, it was most effective at high speed. But the, yeah, that's that's really what he should he should have done. But as I say, the simulator didn't replicate it, so it wasn't a drill that was given to people um, in the sim. And um, although it was in the memory quiz. It, it wasn't, you know, I think, again, it comes back to, I, I, I have an opinion about the memory quizzes, you know, and, and I, as I understand it, the Tornado Force had it, you had to write it out and get it verbatim correct, and that's something that the Italians and the Germans had kind of picked up from training in the USA. Hmm. I feel quite passionately that it's, whether you say gear or undercarriage doesn't matter if it's saying gear or undercarriage up, as long as you move the lever that, to bring the wheels up, job done what matters is about where your hands go around the cockpit but i get a sense and maybe i'm being unfair on the, the u.s brethren but they get wrapped around the axle about the punctuation figuring that if you know if you know that well that you're going to do you can recite it yes and i've seen some of your colleagues or some of your interviewees recite like uh, memory drills from the f4 phantom you know the f4c and you know it's that ingrained but what I think really matters is where your hands go around the cockpit. Where are you looking? You know, that's what matters. Not whether you know it's, a, it's the gear or undercarriage, or whether there's a comma there or not. Um, but yeah, it, it wasn't something they've been trained. So yeah, he should have cancelled reverse, re-established directional control of the aircraft, and then um, re-engaged both uh, both um, engines in idle reverse, or you know, potentially taken an overrun cable. But as it happened, what he did was retard. With the reverser still deployed, he brought the throttles to or the throttle to idle, but the buckets are still deployed. So you're waiting for the engine to spool down before you get the clear airflow of the fitting, which is too late by that point. You obviously answer the question as to whether or not there are any immediate um, impacts on your your career because you you ended up flying again, you know, two weeks later. But yeah, any long term damage to your career? I think you left the Royal Air Force fairly soon afterwards, didn't you? Yeah, I, I did. I was intending to leave. Uh, I had got to the end of my contract on my last frontline tour, but um, if people remember the banking crisis, the subprime mortgages and all that sort of thing that impacted the airline industry to the extent there were no airline jobs to go to. Um, the RAF was excellent. Um, they were very kind to me. I, I had multiple short-term extensions to my contract and um, eventually quite rightly asked me what my intentions were. So I elected to stay and they needed people with my qualifications up on the conversion unit. So it was a quick win for them. I stayed flying, but no, I, um, I was concerned about whether it would affect my opportunities at getting a job in the airline industry, but as any professional aviator would, you know, you can, you uh, cooperate with the investigation, try and make sure all the lessons are identified. And, um, you know, I talked to all the other instructor pilots, gave a briefing to them about what I learned and tried to highlight the areas that, that I think they needed to watch out for, stuff that hadn't been discussed before. And, um, yeah, it, it was kind of put down 
there, there were multiple lessons identified from the from the report. Some of it supervisory for my colleague coming from the front line about how how long it had been since he'd flown, and a few other aspects there, and also about the performance of the um, of the nose wheel and what can happen um, under reverse. So I think it. You know, other aircraft had had runway excursions and people had had ejected in Goose Bay, for example, crosswinds, wet runways, stuff like that. People had punched out in that scenario before. So it was not unusual, but it had been quite, well, it had been a long time since it had happened. So, you know, it was really a case of drilling home the SOP. Say, look, you know, don't be clever with the reverse. Make sure you know what you're going to do if you get either a failure or if you get lots of drift on, on application reverse and make sure that you are taxing back before you power up on one engine to close the cross drive clutch and enable one engine to drive both the gearboxes and then shutting down the other one. Hmm. So, um, yeah, it was re- kind of refocusing people's attentions on SOPs. Yeah, I was, I think I was tr- maybe not trying to be clever, but I thought, well, it, this, it's a valid thing. It was within the release to service for asymmetric thrust reverse, but, you know, it got out of shape amazingly quickly. Final question then, Nick. Did you log this as a landing? I did. <laughs> just one, uh, it just one sort of one liner saying ejected, you know, figure. It, it's the Brit, it's the Brit way, isn't it? Nicely understated. But other people have asked me, did he pass the check ride? And the answer is no. <laughs> so. But, you know, we, we still contact each other on the anniversary of our ejection. So, you know, no hard feelings. It's just it comes under the category stuff happens sometimes. Do you get a nice watch out of Martin Baker? Ah, good point. Yeah, Martin Baker did try to sell me one of their nice watches. They tried to sell uh, it to you? Yeah. Cheapskates. Yeah, but but I was actually at the, at the factory. So I'd like to say a big thank you to Martin Baker because um, – yeah, you do get a chance to go and visit the factory if you've used their uh, extreme furniture. And um, they were so nice about it. My my father had a um, 70th birthday coming up. And, I, you know, you're racking your brains about what you can do that's memorable. They've, You know, your parents have got enough ties. They've got enough socks. They've got enough widgets. And I thought, OK, I will contact Martin Baker. So for everyone who's ejected, you get an ejectee number. And there's a wall with a, a photo matrix of a, somebody punching out of a Harrier in Afghanistan, and the and the and the photo is made up of the names of everyone who's used their uh, used their seats. So I contacted them by email saying, "I'm ejecting you number this. Any chance I could come and visit the factory and bring my dad?" And they they at short notice, maybe a week's notice, um, they said yes, and and they were such wonderful hosts uh, at such short notice to my dad and I. It was a great day for him. Um, and it was a great opportunity to um, to talk to the people in the factory. They're passionate about the product, um, you know, uh, and that so many people have been saved despite ejecting outside seat parameters. You know, it's just um, it's just an amazing thing. And I and I was fine, you know, apart from soft tissue inju- injuries like bruised shins from the leg restraints, that's a bit of whiplash to my neck. You know, I was flying again two weeks later with no no ill effects. Um, so yeah, big shout out to Martin Baker. They're you know great people, great great British firm. But they still try to sell you a watch. That's disgusting. <laughs> well, I'm not going to talk about Breitling because I tried to get a free service out there saying, yeah, and and I've ejected, and I even put a picture of, of similar to the one that's on the screen here, Brian. saying, you know, I've, you know, your watch kept running after the ejection. Any chance of a free service? No. I think it's a uh, Bremont is the brand that um martin baker used now isn't it that's right yeah, yeah. Brightling, brightling different but uh, yeah i was i was chiseling for a freebie and got nowhere with it 
It's, it's another it's another good British brand. Bring on. Okay. We anyway we we've we've done our piece for uh, advertising British brands. So um, yeah, Nick, I wanted to say thank you so much indeed for coming on the channel, and being a guest, and um, I do think this has probably been the most. Um, I, I think this will probably be um, and will stand as um, the most authoritative guide around the tornado, the GL one and GL four. Uh, that is out there on the internet. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk us through everything um, for, for giving us your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I mean, I've really enjoyed the other content you put out there and I really enjoyed hearing other people's stories and I just wanted to share a bit of the uh, you know, the inside track on the tornado and what it was really like. So uh, I hope people have enjoyed it and, uh, and thanks for having me on. Really appreciate that. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for tuning in to 10% True. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to subscribe, and if you're on YouTube, hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode. Thanks, and take care.